Calgary guys staying at home. Ryan Pinder and Pat Steinberg talking sports, pop culture, life, and anything else. Your afternoon diversion is right here. Stream online at sportsnet.ca slash 960. Download the Sportsnet or Radio Player Canada apps. Pinder and Steinberg are on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. A team like Saskatchewan, because they're a publicly owned team, so their numbers are, are public and, and we know what their figures are. If you study their balance sheet, the money they get from the league, which is shared sponsorship, but mainly television, is shy of $5 million a year. Their ticket revenues are, were over $17 million in 2018. So that gives you a sense of just how significant you know, bringing people into stadiums are in, in terms of the heartbeat of the economics of the Canadian Football League. That's Sportsnet's Arash Madani. He had the report last night on the CFL being in contact, the federal government, and right there breaks down the economic issues faced by the Canadian Football League. The CFL has uh, been in contact with the federal government and, and is looking for economic aid facing the specter of no season uh, or a truncated season and uh, facing the specter of not being able to play games and and as you just heard, not being able to get get most of their revenue uh, from where most of their revenue comes from. This is, and, and Ryan, we've talked so much about how the NHL or Major League Baseball relies heavily on gates. And what we mean by that is butts in seats at stadiums. Uh, I don't know. Those are the four major professional sport le- sports leagues, but then when you start talking about the ones just on the outside, like Major League Soccer or, or the CFL, the CPL, whatever the case may be, from a CFL standpoint, Arash just laid it out pretty darn uh, clearly as to how much the Canadian Football League relies on having people in the stadium and the economics broken down there from a Saskatchewan standpoint where, you know, that's $17 million uh, comes from having people in the stands and I think it's somewhere in the half a million range comes from merchandise. It, it tell, and the TV deal gives some, but not $17 million per team. Gives you an idea of how difficult it would be to make up a good chunk of money even if they're able to play games with no fans in buildings. We'll get into the government side of things in just a second, but that was uh, that article from Arash and some of the conversations that have been had here over the last two or three days give a pretty stark and realistic view of the challenges the Canadian Football League are facing right now. Just like almost every other business in the country, Pat, it's not unique. Um, I don't know how many businesses are operating normally now. I don't know if you're a restaurant and you don't uh, and you can't seat people. How's that business going? I mean, it is not good for the CFL, but it's not good for I'd suggest over ninety percent of businesses in this country. It's not unique at all. I don't, I don't. I don't believe I made the case that it was unique. I just. Was, I'm not we're suggesting sport, you were. We're a sports saying... radio station, so we're talking about yeah. uh, one of the the major leagues that we cover, and and that's it's it and and it is unique from a sporting league perspective. I don't believe that uh, any of the the leagues that we talk about, specifically the NHL, but I don't think Major League Baseball, the NFL, or the NBA faces as dire consequences. Like, look, we talked yesterday about how 
how the NHL would be able to restart, why they'd want to restart, and and what the reasoning would be behind that, and that's to recoup you know four or five hundred million dollars of the maybe billion dollars they could lose. But if they lose that billion dollars, the NHL is coming back. If the yeah. CFL loses a season, I don't know. I, I it's it's a whole lot less sure for me that the Canadian Football League is just, yeah we lost the season, but we'll be back in twenty twenty one. I, I believe the consequences are far more dire there than they are in any of the other leagues we talk about. And that's, from our standpoint, what makes it unique. Yeah, I'm not so sure I agree because you've got such deep-pocketed ownership groups. Calgary Sports and Entertainment Corporation is a very wealthy company that, yes, has got tough times when you can't sell tickets to Roughnecks, to Stampeders, to Flames, to Hitman, etc., but you're talking about an ownership group worth well over a billion dollars. You know, you look at uh, the ownership group in Toronto of the Argonauts. That's one that's, you know, where you factor in who owns pieces of that. You're talking probably close to $50 billion or, you know, at least north of 25, I'd think. Um, I just don't have really a ton of sympathy so for the, the for, Alouettes. The Alouettes and the Argos specifically have been operating at, uh, you know, close to double digit million dollar losses over the last number of years. Yep. I don't I don't know how many of those owners deep pockets or not are going to be saying, yeah, you know what? Let's sink more into this for a business that isn't working right now. Well, and, was the business, so was are you are you saving them from the pandemic? Or are you just saving a business model that doesn't work? Because you could argue that three-down football in Toronto just won't work, and it's a bad investment. I don't think you were here to save people's bad investments. I'd be fine no, with this. No, but I think you're – if the, the conversation becomes, can the league survive? And I, if, the I, league, if the league can't survive with and, – and look, you can tell me all you want. It's, it's funny. If you're just joining us, welcome to Pinder and Steinberg. Um, this is somewhat of a continuation of the rant that Pinder was going on in a group chat last night. So uh, you'll have to excuse us if it sounds like we're going over material that we have discussed before. Uh, this is when Pinder is at his most infuriating for me because I, I don't – I don't know if you're looking at it realistically. I really don't. Your 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 take is that no, these are billionaire owners, and which isn't the case in all nine markets. But these are no, billionaire but there owners. There are billionaire owners in there. Yeah. What's that? There are billionaire owners that don't. There CFL are teams. there are yeah. some billionaire some owners. that don't pay taxes in Canada. They live elsewhere. Um, yeah, that's yeah. that's one city. That's 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 one city. Um, but the fact of the matter is, yeah. These might be rich owners, and these might be guys that have the ability to sink more money into it, but these are also businessmen. And I, I'm just I'm not looking at this from anything other than a realistic standpoint. I don't know if, if the CFL isn't able to play and if they aren't able to get any um, any type of aid or any type of help, then I don't know. A, if the owners who own the league, uh, own the teams right now, are going to sink the money that you are so adamantly saying they have into the Canadian Football League because of this pandemic, and yes, it is pandemic-related, and B, I don't know if there's a, a huge line of people lining up to buy CFL franchises right now. So from a realistic standpoint... I believe that if the league doesn't play this year and if the league doesn't get government help, 
then they are in trouble. Now, that's a completely different conversation as to whether or not they should or shouldn't get government help, but I do believe that they're in very large trouble if they're not able to play games this year and if they have to lose the entire season because I don't know if these rich owners that you keep talking about are going to be willing to keep the league afloat. That's what worries me. It's, It's less about the actual pocketbooks and, and portfolios of the people who own the league is the fact that I'm, I'm looking at it and I have I have friends who work in the CFL at different teams. I look at the uh, hundreds of Canadian football players that this league employs for, let's be honest, we're, we're talking about a league minimum salary of $65,000 and a lot, that starting this year before it was 55000 and we're talking about a lot of Canadian players in and around that range. That, that's that's a giant hit if the league can't play going forward. So that's that's what I'm worried about most is what happens if they don't play this season and what happens if there's no economic aid from elsewhere. So there's already economic aid for your friends that work at CFL organizations and for Canadian players because they would qualify for a lot of relief from government plans that already exist. Not if from the league strict... folds, though. This is what I'm saying. Why? I, the... Okay, but hang on, hang on. You, I, what I've said is correct. If I'm someone who's out of work because of this, there are programs available from the federal government that I could go to. I don't need, if I'm the government, to bail out the CFL to help out employees that are going to lose their job. There are already programs for them. Secondly, I don't believe the league is in danger of folding at all. careers you're talking about. You're talking about going on EI, which runs out, and say, oh, there's government programs for them. You're talking about not just a temporary shutdown of their job. You're talking about their jobs ending because the league folds. Like That's that's what drives me crazy in this conversation. There are government programs for them. You're, You're basically saying it doesn't matter if these people lose their jobs because there's EI. No, I'm not. I'm that's essentially, that's, that's exactly what you're saying. Let me clarify. What I'm saying is these people aren't more special than other people that work in other industries. Because you work for the Hamilton Tiger Cats does not mean your job is more valuable than if you work at a restaurant. Who's saying that they are? Well, you're telling me that they deserve to be bailed out. You're not telling me that every business in Canada. I'm, I'm saying that the I'm saying that the government has already allocated half a trillion dollars to to help bailing out businesses that pay taxes. What's the what, like? Why would the CFL, as a business, not be eligible for government money that is going to businesses the same way other businesses are? Well, there's a few ways to look at it. First off, I'd say it's an entertainment and pro sports product, so that it's would be still very, a business. Well, let me finish. Let me finish. Of course, it's a business. Uh, secondly, there are already organizations that have benefited from hundreds of millions of dollars of government money. With when you look at the vast majority of the infrastructure they plan, how many hundreds of millions of dollars have gone into? BC Place renovation. There's half a billion. Uh, what was the price tag on? It it's completely unrelated. Those no, things all happened totally, before before a, these, a pandemic ravaged the entire ravaged the entire economy of this country. What I'm illustrating is that these are already businesses that have been given special treatment. They don't need it again. If I'm an oil and gas company, I can't get the government to build me a five hundred million dollar facility. I got to do it on my own. But if I'm the BC Lions, well. You know, here I go. We're a pro sports team. We get favorable. It's, you, it's, can't it's, relate, you can't relate your continuing um, your continuing crusade against government funding for buildings. You can't relate that to trying to get money to help a, a business that is failing during during a pandemic. They're completely unrelated. So should every single person 
that loses their job in this country be given an entire year's salary from the government to save them? Yes or no? That's that's literally what the government is trying to do. They're trying no, it's not. To, it is so they 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 are giving money salary, out until the, they they are guaranteeing they are they are helping businesses out that that qualify for it until the end of June for now, if not longer, so that they don't have to fold and they don't have to lay off all their employees. They are helping short term, not for a full season or year. And yes, they're here to help. But we don't know that yet, though, because we don't know what this looks like in in a couple of months. And and on top of that, a, a lot of companies are going to be able to return and and be able to get back to life or or business more normal than other businesses are. And those businesses that aren't, I think the government will be willing to help out in different ways. Look, I'm not sitting here advocating saying that the the government should close their eyes and just give the Canadian Football League anything they want. I'm just saying that as a business, they should be also looked at as as being able to get some government aid so that they can continue running their business. And and that's not to mention all the other stuff that goes into the, the to the CFL in terms of what they mean to this country and all that. Like that that's that's a completely different conversation that I, I don't even know if we have time to get into right now. All I'm saying I is that like I don't think this like is other I don't think this have. is a bunch of millionaires in Brioni suits lining up to Justin Trudeau's door saying, Hey, we're we're millionaires and billionaires. We don't want to spend our money, give us money. That's not what this is. This is the commissioner of a CFL saying I, I don't know if we can survive if, realistically, I don't know if we can survive if we lose an entire season. Is there anything you can do for us? I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I really don't. I think it's an absolute farce to think this league could fold. I, that's my personal belief. And I'll take it back to the analogy you said at the beginning. I'm just looking at it as a, bi- as a business person perspective. That's what you said. So let's say you got a franchise that's worth 10 to $20 million. Are you really going to walk away from a commodity worth that amount when things are normal for the cost of shutting it down for a year, which might be what one or 2 million bucks, maybe like their costs. How many of these, how many of these organizations are, are profitable? Like you're, you're trying, like we're talking about some that are just borderline profitable. If, if not break even, you're talking about some that are double digit millions in losses and you're talking about some that that you know prop up the league, specifically one that is based in Regina and and maybe one that's based in Winnipeg. So you've got okay, you, so and and, and Ottawa probably is throwing like you're talking about some that lose significant amounts of money, some that break even and and just barely get by, and and some that are able to prop the league up. And and so I, I just I don't look at it as this highly profitable league with nine owners sitting pretty saying we're making millions off the cfl like i i think you've got a totally warped perspective of what this professional sports league is all about i think you've ignored the exact clip you played to start the segment because if you're telling me that the salary cap in the cfl is 5.3 million dollars canadian the saskatchewan rough riders bring in about 17 million in ticket revenue and they get around four on a tv deal like where are the rest of the costs here patty how in the world does over 20 million dollars when you're paying a payroll of of 5.3, like where where's the we're almost breaking even part? This is a massively profitable 
enterprise you're talking that's about here. One, the Saskatchewan that's one team, though. Like, you, you right. know as well so, as I do that Saskatchewan props up the league. You can't compare okay, the Riders to any other team in the league. You can't. That's a we, ridiculous we, we, argument. Well, I'm not suggesting all the teams are the Riders. What I'm suggesting is you can say that's the high water mark. Okay, so what if, if it's 17 or 19 million, whatever a rash at the top, 17 million, I believe, in revenue for tickets for the Riders in a year? What do we suggest average ticket revenue is for the rest of the league? Take out Saskatchewan. I wouldn't I don't, think it's. I don't just, know, but I do know be, that yeah, I do know like, that BC and right? Toronto and Montreal don't make money, and I do and, know that you know teams bad. like uh, Edmonton and and Calgary, if they make money, we're not talking about massive massive profits every year. I I, I know these things. Well, you don't. You're, you're suggesting these things. They are not publicly traded companies. Their books are not open. These are things you've been told but cannot be verified outside of the riders, which are a public. True, but team. you haven't been told anything, so you're just making things up out of thin air. Le- uh, like at least, I, at least I've, I've come up and said, well, these are things that I've told from people that, I've, uh, that hey. I trust who have a little bit more knowledge of the situation than either of us. Right, but your people that you know probably are, are slanted towards the CFL getting a handout. If I if I can be a little, you know, step out and make a guess here, is that fair? Do, are, are Not necessarily. In, in fact, people who are totally uh, totally biased or or on your side, where you don't think that they, they should get a single penny. I'm not saying they should not get a single penny. I'm saying they shouldn't be treated differently than any other business. I and I, but at the crux of this, I'm not special? necessarily saying they should either. I, just I think, think you are that, when they're asking for $150 million. If you well, think that's think a reason why you are. A, it, it's, been, it's been knocked down to uh, $120 million. Um, but the, the point of the, 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 the fact of the matter is, I'm not, as I already said, I don't believe that the CFL should just all of a sudden be blindly given a blank check from the government and he should, they, they should just be able to, you know what, we, we need this, give us this, let's move forward. But I also don't think this concept of the CFL being a bunch of millionaires and billionaires, this is not the NHL. We're talking about Canadian human beings, 25-year-old Canadian people and who, who are making $65,000 to play football. Like I, All of a sudden, you're, you're taking a potential career away from these guys, and, and this is the career that they've chosen for a little bit. And you can so be as, as callous as you want, saying, well, yeah, well, they should have chosen something else. Well, the fact of the matter is they didn't, and, and you're taking jobs away from people and and the reason we're having this conversation is because we're on a sports radio station i'm not saying that they should get they they should get any different treatment than other than other businesses necessarily i'm just saying that the concept of the government helping the canadian football league is not this evil concept that that needs to be shot into the sun and and that's what i feel your take has been and that's what i feel a lot of the social media takes have been is that there's no way a pro sports league should get uh government help this is ridiculous there are more important things i'm not saying there's not more important things of course there are but I also don't think it's crazy to suggest that a government could help a league that represents the country and employs thousands of Canadians. And that's that's why I, I think it's a little short-sighted to just say, nope, millionaires and billionaires, they don't deserve a dime. That, that, okay. that to me, is what's frustrating. I understand your frustration. So let's play some numbers. Let's stick to facts. Let's not talk about opinions. $120 million divided by nine teams is what? Mm, I'm not very 13 million? 13.3? The salary cap is 5.3 million Canadian. If you give 13.3 million per team, where's that money going and how is that a reasonable ask? 
answer that. That's why I said I didn't sit as as I've already said. I don't believe that they should just get what they're asking for. I think well, there's what probably some some form of middle ground that helps the CFL stay alive and also doesn't have a ridiculous uh, a ridiculous number attached to it. And that's why okay, well so that's, that's what it comes the, down to for me. Right, but understand that my reaction to this was when the ask was 150 million. $16.7 million per team for a league with a player cap of 5.3. That's a ridiculous ask. So if you don't like my reaction to that, run the numbers and tell me what they're doing with the extra $9 million over the cap per team. That's insanity. Our government should be looking at saving more jobs than a small percentage of players who are Canadian in a pro sports entertainment league. There are industries dying here. There is not going to be a CFL folding, in my opinion, if they lose a season. There are huge investments made by very wealthy people that have the ability to sustain losses for a year if they can get back on track and keep these very profitable teams, generally speaking. They've got a CBA that player salaries aren't tied to revenues. That's like unheard of in pro sport. Um, and I understand there's trouble spots, but they're the trouble spots that existed before the pandemic. This, this, this I'm largely, not here to say this largely profitable football. league, this largely profitable league would not need to go to the government and ask for help if they were so largely profitable. Really? Is, you believe that? What's that? You think, you think this is based out of need, not out of, well, we made as well 100%. Try. I 100% I do. Why did they ask for 150? Well, because they probably started high and, and it'll probably come down to something a little bit more reasonable when the government says, okay, if, if the government says, okay, we're willing to help out a little bit, let's actually take a look at the books. Let's actually take a look at what you would need to stay afloat. Again, that's why I think that uh, an ask and a report of number X isn't what the league should get. But I also don't think it's crazy to suggest the league should get help because I, I do believe that if they lose a season and aren't able to bring in any revenue this year, I do believe that the league will be in significant trouble, and I do believe that they will uh, that they'll have trouble going forward. I, I honestly do believe that, and this the reason is is that how many times have we talked about the league being on stable foot on, on rather shaky footing? prior to this pandemic about uh, a fan base that is only getting older about not being able to connect with the younger generation um, those types of about about buildings not being full this league was already in in a little bit of trouble and now a pandemic hits yeah I'm worried about it so I I don't think it's a farce to suggest that if the league can't play this year and they don't get some sort of financial aid I I, I do think it's realistic that they would be absolutely in danger of of full and not being able to continue so let's let's go back to the saskatchewan model understanding that that's the most profitable team in the in the cfl and understanding it's the only team where we can poke through the numbers a bit because of their ownership structure if they didn't play this year they laid off staff for a year they didn't play players because they're not playing games they don't have any travel costs they get a break on their lease because they're not using the bloody stadium aside from the office space their costs would drop down to a very very small number if they returned next year and things are normal in here, which we don't know, but you, we probably would suggest that by this time next year, things are closer to normal than they are now. They still could be looking at $17 million in revenue from tickets, another four on a TV deal, and a cap that pays players 5.3. Are you suggesting that they couldn't easily 
handily survive this situation? Are, are you suggesting that Winnipeg, Calgary, Ottawa wouldn't be in the same boat? Here, in the sense here that is they what have, I here is what worries me numbers? about that. Because you're look, at, I know you 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 went to U of L and you've got an economics background. Like I get, I get where you're coming from, but what you're not taking into account is the stomach of certain owners saying, "I, I just like, you know what? I, I'm uh, we're we're barely making a profit. We're not getting any TV money. We're not getting any revenue. Uh, this this isn't viable for us. We don't know if we're going to continue." Um, we don't know if we're going to continue to own these teams. That's what worries me if they don't play. And so let's I, just, I don't think you can use Saskatchewan as an example because Saskatchewan is in such a different world than the rest of the CFL. The Riders prop the league up in such a huge way that, that it's it's tough to compare Saskatchewan to even Winnipeg or Ottawa or Calgary. Like It really is. The, the, the okay, disparity so in, in profits are massive between the Riders and everybody else. So we'll play two ways. You take out Saskatchewan on the high end. I want to take out Toronto, Montreal, BC, because they've been trouble spots well before the pandemic. Okay? And they also were buoyed by very wealthy ownership and new ownership in Montreal that just forked over, like, what, 10 to 20 million? Something like that's the rumored number. Mm -hmm. So when I look at Ottawa, Edmonton, Calgary, Winnipeg, these are CFL markets that each have their own nuances and aren't perfect. And is it an aging facility? Are there some attendance was Whatever. But I just don't see how if you're a business owner, Pat, and you've got an entity that when is healthy is worth around $20 million, why you just close shop? Wouldn't you sell it for five before you close shop? And if I'm a, a guy that's got a bunch of dough, I'm thinking this thing was worth 20 a year ago and I can buy it for five now. I'm happy to jump in and buy this thing at a huge discount. Things get back to normal. It'll be back up to 20 in a year or two. Yeah. I just, I, I just, folding, folding I worry. Is so the last option. I just think that's crazy to think, well, it's going to be tough. So we'll just fold it and all that money in equity of the franchise. I'm just going to forget about it and lose that money. That is exactly how a business person doesn't think. I just worry that this is beyond just the straight economics. This is the league and its owners saying, we've been gone for a year. Maybe, who knows? Are they going to be able to play again next year? I, I worry that some owners say, you know what, this just isn't viable for us. Are, are we even going to have a viable business when we come back? Uh, is this is this league going to be too damaged from not playing for a year or longer? That's what I worry about. There, there are more than just the straight economics, dollars in, dollars out of this thing. It's projections going forward. It's owners that have been looking at a, a business model that they're like, ah, you know, we'll keep it because – we're passionate and we're not losing tons of money, but are, are we willing to come back with a, a business model or, or a, a business as an entity that isn't as viable going forward because we've lost a season or two? And for the owners that have been losing money and yeah, so they've break, broken even because of a pandemic maybe, are they going to all of a sudden be like, yeah, you know what? We've broken even because, because of a pandemic. We're going to come back and lose $10 million a year again. I, I just, it's, it, it, it goes so far, at least for me, it goes so far beyond dollars and cents in and out. And it goes so far beyond just the X's and O's of business and, and what these guys portfolios might look like. And the problem is, is, 
I don't think I'm crazy to say that the league would be in trouble if they don't play this year, and that worries me for people who have made careers in this league as, as you know, people who work for the teams in, in front offices, whether it be PR staffs or training staffs or all those types of things. And I worry for, for players in this league. And, and for those who say that it doesn't employ thousands of Canadian people, you're wrong. It does employ thousands of Canadian people. Half the league is Canadian players. It's a league where Canadian football players are able to play, and it employs hundreds of people in each organization. This is this is a, yeah, there are Americans who play in the CFL, but there are far more Canadians who are employed by the CFL than anyone else. It, it goes beyond just the players. So I, I, that's what I worry about, and that's why I look at them and say, as a business if they were to get some help from the government, I would not be opposed to it. Do I think that they should get 150 or $120 million in the snap of a finger without blinking of an eye? Of course not. I think that you need to make it a fair, uh, a fair payment if the government goes forward with it. And you have to sit there and say, well, it's, it's got to be only so they can stay viable and so that they can, can survive, not so that teams can profit off of it. That's, that's not what I'm suggesting at all. But so what is a fair number? I have no idea because I don't know the but that's overhead right? costs. I don't know the – but if if and when we find out a fair number and we get a little bit more information on that, I'll be able – I think 150 is too high. I think probably 120 is too high. But somewhere in the millions to help the CFL stay afloat. I'm talking more about the principle as opposed to the, the report that's out there right now. The principle of the government of Canada helping the Canadian Football League, I am not opposed to. I am not, and, and I think it is a viable conversation going forward to just not blink an eye and say, here's $150 million. Well, yes, I'd be opposed to that because that's not, that's not very uh, responsible governing of my, of my government. So, like, there's... The, there are nuances to this thing, but at the core of it, I don't believe the CFL being helped by the Canadian government is a bad thing. That's where I will rest my case. Uh, finish. You, you rebut and wrap up and throw the break. Well, I, I certainly understand the sentiment, and this is like it becomes emotional. If, if you love a sports league and you love a brand of entertainment, you're worried about it going away, and I get that. But I really believe from a strict business perspective – this league is in such a far spot from going away. I just look at the TV rights holders on their own. You're talking about a company with market cap of $36 billion. If there was ever even a thought that the CFL might be close to going under, they could buy this thing without it hardly even showing up on their balance sheet. And that keeps their TV product alive. They control the whole thing. I mean, $36 billion is one there's of just so many. There's so many ifs and and what ifs and maybes in in what you're saying is is like well they could do this or this could happen i just you i i think that you're underselling the the trouble the league is in right now that's that's well, and i that's think what you're I overselling believe. i think that would probably get to the the nut of the argument like i don't see the cfl as like man this business is going to struggle way more than all the other businesses during this pandemic. Well, I think Rash right- made a really good point when he was on 590 earlier. we got to get to break here. we got a great guest coming up. Um, but Arash made a really good point. His point was essentially that if you're a business that was already having issues, this pandemic is really hurting you. 
and the CFL was already having issues. And, and I don't think you can argue that whatsoever. For you to suggest and for the texters to suggest, and there are some of the texters suggest that we're talking about a billionaire league that is, is dying and doesn't deserve to, to be helped out because it has no impact on, on the Canadian economy. Those are all just wrong, false statements. There are very few billionaires in this league. There are very few massively profitable teams in this league. And this, this is a league that whether whether it has huge ratings or not, or whether you're an NFL fan or not, you can't sit here and tell me that it's not callous to suggest, screw it, fold the league, doesn't matter anymore. Well, that's a lot of jobs that have just gone by the wayside. And I'm not saying that it's any more special than any other business that is facing that, but the, pro- the, 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 the fact of the matter is, we're a sports radio station. We're not debating Air Canada. We're not debating... Bombardier, we're not. We're, these aren't things that we're debating. We're, we're talking about a sports league because that's our wheelhouse, and and so I'm not suggesting that it's more important than other companies that are in trouble. I'm saying it's a company in trouble, so they should be they should be eligible to have the government look at whether or not they should help them stay afloat. That's that's my main argument here. Yeah, and I think 150 million is ridiculous. I mean, I'm looking at the ownership groups. There's already three owners that are worth well over 100 million, a couple into the billions. But do you? Um, I've already said that 150 or 120 is probably too high. So, but but are you completely opposed to the government helping in any shape whatsoever? No, of course not. I just think 150 million is a ridiculous ask that clearly was about trying to grab cash while it's coming out, smash and grab, get it while it's there. I don't think it's realistic. I think it's a bad look for the league. It looks greedy. Show yeah, me where I you're calling. I see it more as, well, here's here's the initial ask. Let's negotiate or let's let's see what is actually realistic. I I I didn't see it as greedy because I I think I, I'm a little bit more um, I'm not trying to I think I believe a little bit more that the league is in actual trouble, regardless of a pandemic. Uh, like I've I've believed that for quite some time. Uh, so I I didn't look at it as greedy. I looked at it as a league that was already in trouble and now is being nailed with an economic ra- economically ravaging pandemic that is doing more damage to them than it would be other sports leagues in the world. So I I didn't see it quite as as greedy or poor optically as you did. That's fair. Now, I mean, I understand they're not perfect, but we're talking about the best TV deal they've ever had, the best CBA they've ever had in terms of no player salaries tied to revenues, and they just probably had the highest franchise value paid for someone to buy into the league. It's not roses across the board, but those are three very good indicators that life is good in the CFL relative to where it's been. We'll pause. We'll agree to disagree on on that one there. We'll come back. Pinder and Steinberg rolls on today. Busy day. We'll have more CFL conversation with Justin Dunk at 3 o'clock. The draft tomorrow. Jeff Snyder will join us. Wildcard Wednesday. The best draft in NHL history was at 03. We'll discuss that in the 4 o'clock hour. And Ron Sutter, one of the Sutter boys, a twin and the director of player development for the Calgary Flames as well. It's coming up next. Pinder and Steinberg, Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Pinder and Steinberg in the afternoon. Sportsnet 960, The Fan. 239. Our next guest is one of sport royalty. He's a member of the most successful hockey family of all time. Ron Sutter, also a player development with the Calgary Flames. How are you, sir? What's going on? Hello. Ronnie, are you there? I got you. Yep. How are you, man? What's going What's happening? 
Doing good, thanks. Um, just trying to stay sane like everybody else in this crazy world. I gave you this big glitzy intro, and it's like, hey, hello, you there? I was trying to you know, blow your socks off here. Wow, yeah. But uh, whatever. How are you surviving? What's going on? What's the latest in the pandemic here? Well, um, I think like everyone else, probably not as glued to the TV as we were watching it in the first, uh, in the early going of it. Um, now it's like every couple, three days, yeah, we better to maybe just turn the TV on the, for the news and get an update on what's happening uh, in the world. It was kind of a, uh, <laughs> still looks like crazy times in the U.S. and with them different states starting to reopen up different things or get the economy kick-started and Actually, just watched a little bit of the news today at noon. Sounds like the uh, Kenny is looking at maybe moving ahead with some early phases. So you know, sounds like not in the not too distant future. So, uh, like I said, just trying to stay sane, stay busy around home. Yeah, fair enough. We're all trying to find out uh, how to live life in the new normal here. Uh, I want to have a little fun with you. I wanted to ask you about uh, all the brothers. Who would be really, really good quarantine partner and who you'd want to stay away from? So I've got a few categories. If you're oh, worried about shit. food, which of your brothers? If I'm worried brothers, about food? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're quarantined. Someone's got to cook. So if you've got to pick a cook, which brother are you taking? Uh, well, I would have to say we're all fairly handy. Um, which brother would I be taking? Yeah. For food, uh, for for like being a chef like type guy, or just like a straight up man like barbecue, we're all probably good better at the man like barbecue type guy. Straight up uh, chef like, I don't know if I could pick any of them. Might be you then. That's kind of how those probably, work. It pro- it'd probably be me because we're more in tune with uh, with what's going on with uh, all the health stuff, and you know, with uh, me and I have the younger kids and. Um, you know, their nutritional value needs and all that. I'm probably more up sure. on that than I'd say because of, because of my younger kids. I like it. Good answer. Okay. So now we got to think about which piece of property we want to be on. Whose estate, house, ranch, apartment, where are you going there for a quarantine partner out of your brothers? I'd have to say probably, um, well, we have a home in Montana, which I can't get to. So that sucks. Um, <laughs> that doesn't so I next would probably be Brent's Lake House up at Silver Lake. Oh, I like that. Good answer. Okay. Who's the tidiest roommate of the bunch? You don't want a slob living with you, quarantined with you. Uh, tidiest roommate. Um, probably be Richie. You'd know. Twins, right? That's that's a guy you got a yeah. good read on. Probably shared a room yeah. a few times, eh? Yeah. Um, Anyone got any BO, body odor, bad habits you want to stay away from that you don't want that in a quarantine? No, I don't think there's any issue with that. Bad habits? Um, <laughs> maybe happy hour starting too soon some days. <laughs> now, who, who do you want for happy hour? Who do you want to stay away from? Like, you got to. Well, I wouldn't want to stay away from. I wouldn't want to stay away from any of them because okay. our happy hours together are really good. <laughs> you know I, the more I, i'm talking to you the more i think you guys need to be in one big bubble together get all the crews together 
that that's got to be a win, right? You go, oh, for go sure. To Prince Lake and get everyone together. That's how you quarantine. The only thing is that if our wives are with us, um, <laughs> there might be a problem. You need a divorce lawyer or two, huh? Yeah. <laughs> All right, great stuff. Uh, Ron Sutter's with us, player development with the Flames, and, of course, one of the Sutter boys. Tell us where you were when uh, the pandemic struck. Uh, I'm counting. We're at day 49 of the sports apocalypse right now. Uh, we were we were back home in Calgary. Um, I just finished up uh, some travel, I think, about a week and a half before, and um and I actually just just was kind of laying out the map wise as far as what was going to happen for uh, junior and college playoffs and um uh actually had one one trip booked another one in the works and uh ended up uh having to pull a pin on all that so um that's that's where I was I was right here at home in Calgary not good um what how quick was it for you that everything grinded to a halt? I know that uh, we'd kind of caught wind. Maybe the, that trip to New York, we weren't be able to get uh, Lou and Derek there to call the games. Maybe it would come off monitors, and then poof, it was gone. The season was over. Uh, I can't imagine that's fun to drop all these plans to go visit different prospects, players, and then all of a sudden they're all torn up and all these leagues have been shut down or paused. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the hardest part is, is you know, your, your work is pretty much done your main line of work is pretty much done on the season for the kids. Now it's just following up and seeing them play and, and more pressure like situations and wanting to see how they react. Um, you know, the highs and lows of the game, you know, the pressure comes with it and see how they handle it all. But uh, it's, hey, it's part of the game. It's um, you stay in touch with the kids. Um, but, you know, they're, they're more bummed out than we are, obviously. Um you know, because they're the ones that have to put the blades on. But at the same time, it's disappointing because you, you want to see how they, you know, because their careers are advanced and you want to see uh, how close they are to maybe becoming uh, pro players. Um, you want to see how they react in certain situations during playoff time. And and for for us, it's it's a fun time of year for us, too, to watch them. And, and as much as it was when you were a former player, like, you enjoy these times, you, you miss it, uh, just that uh, – the fun of being at the rink, it's it's easy to go, much easier to go to the rink at this time of year to watch games. Ron Sutter's with us, uh, player development for the Calgary Flames, and, of course, one of the Sutter boys here on Pinder and Steinberg. Ronnie, tell tell us about how hard this has been just on on the Sutter family. Rich works in hockey. Uh, Dwayne works in hockey. You work in hockey. Uh, Brent's with the Rebels. Like you said, there's there's so many of of you that still are involved full time in hockey, and and now there's no hockey. Just as a family, oh. how, how difficult has this been? Well, you know, and Daryl was involved with Anaheim. Um, yeah, Daryl's the box, from, Yeah, recently from a trip. Uh, Brian was coaching Annisville. Um They were getting, I think they were getting ready for playoffs and they were just, had actually, they were just getting ready to host a big fundraiser, I believe, later that week, I think on the Friday after this all happened. So, um, you know, all the plans and everything that goes into that, everything that ended up being canceled because of the number of people you were restricted to have. And then obviously they were going to have more than, more than a hundred. So, um, it's it's a bummer. Uh, I think you just kind of sit back and say, "Well, you know, it's it's in, what's going on right now is in someone else's hands, and we have to adhere to what we're supposed to be doing." And and 
confidently wise, you know, you know that they're doing their best. The best thing about the older brothers like Brian and Daryl and and um, Brent is they got they got farms. It's a little bit easier to you don't have to be housebound. Right. Um, you know they're they've learned to uh, like us. You're you're much more restricted, and you make f- definitely fewer trips to the store and. And you know, like Daryl and I were talking, and he said, you know, just it makes people realize, you know, everything that you think you really need to do, maybe you don't really need to do it all the time. You know, just uh, I think that's part of growing up in the country and growing up on the farm is that you only made one trip to town a week to the grocery store. You, in, in the city folk, you probably go freaking every other day. So it's uh, lessons uh, I think we maybe can handle a little bit better because we. Mm-hmm. understood that part of it knowing that uh you have the necessity things at home you don't have to be running the store every other day for something so um it hasn't been easy it's been a challenge but i think we've all handled it well and i think everybody in general the general public for the most part have handled it well it's funny you talk about how um how quickly this all came about like i want to say two or three days before everything got shut down i was uh chatting with Dwayne on the phone and and he's starting up a hockey school and we were talking about different ways that we could get the word out about that and then uh literally two days later he texted me he goes well maybe it's not so good, such a good time to be talking about a hockey school because there's so much else going on in the world it just it, it really did happen in the snap of a finger how like how how often are the brothers in contact right now like are you guys talking on a regular basis are you doing any of the the zoom calls where you can all be on at the same time what's uh, what's the family no doing you know what we like? have not done a zoom call all of us together um i think that would be hard for brian to to figure out how to get on that um uh, i think um you know we have stayed in touch like i said i talked to daryl recently Dwayne's, you know basically in my neighborhood so uh talked to him every couple of days um, I've actually talked to Brent a few times uh, and Richie as well. So I probably talked to Gary, our oldest brother, more than any, anybody who lives out in Kona. So, um, you know, you just stay in touch, make sure they're doing good, check in on them, and shoot them a text every other day just to say hi and keep up. But um, uh, like I said, it's, I know the guys are up, up on the farms, the ranches, they're, they're busy this time of year too. So um, you just, you know, we are a close group of brothers, and uh, we we still do stay in touch. And I think we probably hear more about what's going on in our lives through our own kids. <laughs> uh, the the NHL has done uh, a bunch of different Zoom calls. They they had like the the Blues together to watch Game Seven of the Stanley Cup Final from last year. Like I, the, the NHL could probably do good work if they got all the Sutter boys together and did one of those for everyone to see. That would be uh, that would be entertaining. Yeah, we would. We would like that. I know my son and I, we got on a Zoom call here, I think a couple of weeks into it with him and his, a um, couple of his teammates and then um, us dads that had got to know each other from our, his junior days and everything. Before we knew it, by the end of the night, I think four hours later, we had eight players and eight dads on the Zoom call. So that, nice. that was fun. Uh, so I, I'm, it's, it's funny because we're talking about the family dynamic now. I just... It's I, I'm fascinated by the the family dynamic throughout the uh, throughout all of your time in the NHL and and I I don't know if you know people necessarily um, would be are, are totally aware of this but like you and you and Rich as twins were attached from birth obviously but like 
all growing up through through hockey were like you guys were inseparable in Lethbridge and then in Philly and then in St. Louis. Like you couldn't you couldn't escape Rich growing up, could you? <laughs> no, you know I, I think being twins, obviously, you know you, what, what one of us wanted to do, the other one wanted to try and, and probably wanted to do better than than the other guy. So. I think from the time growing up to minor hockey and minor baseball and moving on to junior A and Red Deer um, when they were the old wrestlers, um, winning a Canadian championship there, and then, then following the year uh, going on to Lethbridge and playing with Brent. Um, you know, we played with Brent every other year, right through through minor hockey and then uh, up through Lethbridge. So um, it was unique. Uh, for sure, be able to have a chance to play with a couple of brothers, and and then to be able to play with Richie for uh, a couple of years in um, Philly, and then a year and change in St. Louis. So it was uh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Uh, obviously, our, our our roles are different on our teams. Um, uh, we rarely had a chance to play together online, but it was fun mm-hmm. just having them as a teammate again, and, and it definitely uh, made that made it much more enjoyable, uh, especially at the pro level. Do you? Uh... Do you ever give like we see Rich all the time, and and he gives Pinder and I the gears nonstop. So I'm going to give a let let you give him a shot. Uh, but do you ever do you ever give him the gears because uh, you went six picks ahead of him in the same draft? No, you know I I think in general as a whole as brothers we never ever really viewed where you picked or what who picked you. Um, it was just the opportunity to follow in your brother's footsteps and um, knowing one day that. That was something you wanted to do from the time we were probably 14 or 15 years old, knowing that, hey, if they can make it, we can make it too. So um, there was never, ever any jabs or darts thrown each other's way on that. It was just a matter of, uh, I think if there could be anything today, maybe on the longevities of our career, um, Brett and I playing playing over a thousand games. And uh, I think that's probably the only thing we can hold over one another other than the, <laughs> other than the other brothers winning cups. Well, and, and was... it's funny because you you uh, you spent time with Daryl in San Jose as your coach, and uh, Brent and Daryl worked together here as GM and and head coach in Calgary. I'm, I'm just like that. That's got to be a, a brand new dynamic too. When one's playing and one's a coach, and like going to San Jose and and playing under Daryl, that must have been uh, an interesting experience for you. Well, actually, I had Brian before Daryl because Brian coached me in St. Louis. Well, that's right. I forgot about Brian and St. Louis. Oh, um, yeah. two two very intense coaches. Um, Brian more so the uh, more vocal. Uh, he was the leader more by just coming in and and getting the guys riled up, uh, firing them up, um, being more vocal in that regard. Whereas Daryl Daryl would just come in and just his presence. I don't know what it was about him, but just. You know, he was there was no gray area with either one of those guys, but Daryl could just walk through the locker room and and guys would like freaking like a pin would drop. They were they weren't afraid of him, but they he just knew that he demanded respect, and and I enjoyed playing for both those guys. Um, obviously, in San Jose, I was more on the downside of my career, um, but still had a really important role. Um, being one of a handful of older guys there, and basically Daryl would bring us in and say, the locker room is your guys. You five or six guys, you run the locker room. If there's ever a problem, if I have to call you in or kick you in the ass, then there's a problem with you guys and your leadership. So I'd say I, Daryl, 
three or four years, and uh, only once did he kick me in the ass. And uh, I could tell you a story. We were playing in Anaheim, and I was late in the game, and uh, or actually it was in San Jose against Anaheim. I had taken a face-off against Root, our line, Lowry, Ronnie Stern, and myself. We always matched up against other teams' top lines. And uh, they scored on us off of a face-off on our own end. And all I remember is getting to the bench. And Daryl giving me a little nudge in the ribs with his hand. And then um, calling me in next morning and just showing me a quick video of the goal. And all he said was, Steve frickin' Ruchin. And then he pointed at then he pointed at the door. <laughs> Ron Sutter is with us. Um, I want to go back to that 1982 draft year. I don't know if you've heard us, but we've been revisiting draft classes starting in the mid '90s. We're now going to do 2003 today, which is pretty legendary. But what was the buzz in '82 with you and Rich as twins, both considered very highly touted prospects? Not terribly different than the Sedin situation, I would think, but. Maybe not the media spotlight. And then secondly, how did Rich get to Philly? Because it wasn't long that you were separated, even though you were taken by different teams in that draft. Well, I think back then the TV and the media spotlight was just starting to take hold. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of hoopla and fanfare. And as a, you know, in prior years, even when Dwayne got picked in the first round, Brent was a first round pick. Um, I think it was our year we went to the draft in Montreal was probably one of the earlier years uh, maybe no more than two three years in where players actually went to the draft because um, I do know Brent and Dwayne were both at home and they were drafted so so it was shortly after so uh, it was just a different time you know you went in went into the draft uh, met with a few teams um, there was no um, nothing going on like like they did in Toronto and Buffalo with the Combines so it's basically made a few teams uh, at the end of the junior year in Lethbridge throughout the year. I think I had a couple teams come in and meet with me for lunch, uh, but no really in- indication of who would be drafting you. It just kind of, you're on the spot and that's how it happened. So as far as Richie coming to Philly, uh, kind of crazy. I was, um, was playing, we were playing in an exhibition game right near the end of the, end of the exhibition and uh I got off the bus and Bob McCammon was our coach and GM and KG was kind of, a, uh, you know, you just never knew where the hell you stood with him. He was one day, he'd be serious. And the next day he'd want to have fun with you. And, um, I got off the bus from, I think it was an exhibition game. We we're coming home from, uh, the metal arms. And, uh, he asked me how Richie was doing. And I was like, oh, frick, it's freaking one thirty in the morning. What the hell is he asking me about Richie for? And then, uh, and he says to me, he goes, have you talked to him lately? I said, yeah, yesterday. And he just kind of chuckled and walked away. And I'm going, oh, what the frick was that all about? And then uh, and then we get into the start of the regular season, and um, I get a phone call. I think it was just before I was going to lay down for my pregame nap, and it was KG uh, calling me to tell me that, hey, I just made a trade for your brother Richie. Uh, you got to pick him up at the airport because he's in the lineup tonight versus Toronto. That's unbelievable. That is so cool. So. So, yeah, so that's how it happened. And, uh, two years later, he got traded to Vancouver. Give us an update on your son, Riley. He was in uh, Hershey last season. You mentioned he, you've, you've been on a uh, video call with him and some pals. Uh, how is he handling uh, 
this uh, pause in the in their season? Well, really disappointed. Um, obviously, like like all the other players, um, you know, you'd overcome a uh, pretty severe injury at uh, start of the season in camp with Washington. So he missed ten plus weeks. Uh, got himself back in the lineup, and then. Um, just battling to stay in the lineup with the number of players there that they had that carried a lot of guys and um, real good learning year for him. I think confidence wise, uh, there were similarities probably to when he was as a 15, 16 year old in Everett in the Western League. So I think there's uh, comparables he can he can take out of this year, and I know he learned a lot. Uh, really liked the group of guys and Hershey. Uh, really liked the coaching staff. And the team had a chance to win, which is really disappointing about it. So um, I think they lost they lost first place in the standings and an overtime loss to Providence uh, their last game before the season uh, for this season was pulled. So um, great learning year. Uh, he's obviously back home here now, uh, getting some good workouts in, trying to stay in, in shape, and hoping that uh, things can get moving along so he can start doing more soon. Ronnie, just uh, just one last one, and and that's just kind of on. You, you talked about you know how everything stopped and and what happened when everything stopped, but just a, a thought on on what this has been like from a player development standpoint, and and how often you've been in contact with players. You know, you just uh, Emilio Peterson just signed a couple days ago. You just brought in another uh, young kid from from Sweden in Johannes Kinvel today. But just how how often are you talking with the players? How often are you keeping in touch? What's that looked like since the uh, middle of March? Uh, you know, I stayed quite busy for the first couple of weeks. Um, and then since then, it's been kind of hit and miss. Uh, you get busy for a couple of days. Um, you review video on kids, stay in touch with the kids, putting together what were supposed to be pre-development programs for the kids, uh, which typically we don't start doing until till near the end of this month or when kids are done. So you got a head start on that. Um, do stay in touch with all the kids, both in Europe and in Canada, um, you know, through WhatsApp with the European kids. And just uh, making sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. You know, just It's more so anything, just talking to them, making sure that, um, you know, we are a voice for them. Uh, you're, you're working in relationship and, uh, with uh, Ricky Davis in Stockton, Ryan Van Aston here in Calgary, our fitness coaches. Um trying to keep them busy with doing some uh, home exercises. Some of the kids, Swedish kids now are allowed to to go back and, and train with their teams. I think they started this past uh, Monday. I know some of them did for sure. So, you know, it's through text messaging, um, phone calls, and for sure staying in touch every week. Not a week goes by where, you, where, I, where I don't talk to at least one or two of the kids. Last one for me, Ronnie, just uh... – spectacular few seasons put together in the WHL from Dustin Wolf. I wonder what you can tell us about the kid, given that uh, you'd be checking in with him, I imagine, pretty regularly for the last couple of years, or at least one year. You know what? He's um, he's a real good kid. You know, he's kind of a soft-spoken kid. Um, <clears throat> I probably have, have had to dig into Riley a little bit more to get more more kind of in, inside, you know, how, what kind of a kid he really is and, you know, teammate and all that. And, Quiet kid, very respectful, um, very driven. Um, I know his, uh, he takes heat sometimes for his family moving around with him wherever he goes, but um, 
you know, sometimes that's that seems to be the American way with with the, with some of the American kids. But no, no, no fault, no judgment done on that. Uh, it is what it is. Um, at the end of the day, he performs on the ice. You look at his record. Um, geez, I think he's only I think maybe five shutouts or seven shutouts away from being the all-time leader in the WHL. Um, behind some, you know, some pretty top guys, and, and having to replace a guy in Carter Hart, who he's done uh, remarkably well with. So uh, he had big shoes to fill there, but he's come in, he's, he's performed, and he's one of those kids. He's driven. You can tell he's got an attitude about him and a little bit, uh, I don't want to say an air of cockiness, but a certain air of uh, wanting to prove people wrong because of uh, where he's come from. Um, who he is and his size. So I think eventually you're going to see a kid who, who someday uh, will play pro hockey and hopefully in the NHL with the Calgary Flames. Ronnie, great stuff. Love going down memory lane with you. I feel yeah. uh, Patty and I have been texting back and forth. We're going to have to get Richie on to uh, to ask him some of the same questions. He did very well, but uh, there's there's a lot of real good stories in there that I think we just unearthed. All right. Thanks for doing Sounds this today, Ronnie. Thanks, Thanks for Ron. Me. Ron Sutter, player development for the Calgary Flames, one of the twins and, of course, one of the Sutter boys, over 1,000 games in the NHL, uh, joining us on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. Bar's closed. Pickup and delivery still going. 403-248-3344. Patty, it's a big week for the CFL, and uh, all of a sudden uh, news of the day as well. Good time to get Justin Dunk on. He's next. Yeah, we were we were just going to talk CFL draft when I uh, booked him yesterday, but then all of a sudden this news that uh, you and I went uh, back and forth with about an hour ago came out about the league potentially looking for uh, some government aid as well. We'll get the latest on that and tomorrow's CFL draft with Three Down Nations Justin Dunk coming up next. It's Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Calgary guys talking Calgary sports. Pinder and Steinberg are only on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. First of all, apologies to Justin Dunk for being so dang late on this segment. So that's number one. Number two, originally had texted JD from Three Down Nation yesterday, like, hey, let's preview the CFL draft tomorrow. It's coming up on Thursday, and uh, it's a really, really deep class. And, you know, it's a, it's a weird situation, but CFL draft still a really important date on the Canadian Football League calendar. And then last night, the news comes out about the CFL and the Canadian government in conversations, and, and that also is going to be a big chunk of our conversation. We say hello to our good buddy Justin Dunk from Three Down Nation. I haven't had a chance to chat to JD in quite a while. Mr. Dunk, how you doing, my man? Can't complain, considering the current circumstances. What about you, Patty? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. We're uh, grinding our way through making up content on a, uh, on a daily basis, at least uh, <laughs> And the NHL and the CFL have given us some stuff to talk about over the last little while, so that's that's certainly uh, that's certainly helped. What um, NFL was good too, right? Last and, week. NFL gave us lots to talk about over uh, over a good chunk of time, signings, and then the three day draft. So there is there have been some things that have helped us out, but a lot of making up stories. What um, what can you tell us? What's the latest? You have the article up at Three Down Nation. I know uh, your boy Arash has been all over it as well. What's the latest on the uh, CFL's quest? to procure government funding and to try and get some help knowing the situation they're facing? 
essentially it's something they've been working on for a while. And Arash, as you mentioned, had those details up on Sportsnet. And I had heard it being bandied about in the background too. But I was honestly surprised that Commissioner Randy Ambrosi came out and said something publicly about it because, Pat, you well know that in these situations, the better course of action oftentimes is to try to keep it as quiet as you can. Now, reporters like us are going to try to do our jobs and dig out interesting stuff. So perhaps it was going to come out. But the fact that Ambrosi said it himself, I wonder if it's almost a public plea to sort of put on the plate of Justin Trudeau and then others in the Canadian government to try to get it pushed further along because the CFL is going to need that money, even if it's a shortened season, just because of the fact that, you know, they're not selling as much tickets obviously right now because the year has been canceled or at least the start of it, I should say has been pushed back. So that's the latest there is that people around the league really feel like it's a kind of a last ditch effort or one that's, been made public to help push it along. So we, uh, Ryan and I got into a, a bit of a back and forth about this about an hour ago, but why why does the league need this? Why is this something that they look at as, as being very important in, in being able to prop them up a little bit? They need it just like any other business out there. And I was talking to some people around the league today, you know, coaches, general managers, players as well, sort of on all sides of it. And, what I think the general public needs to do is look at it from a business perspective. Just look at the CFL as a business, not a sports league or athletes making millions of dollars because the CFL is a little different than, let's say, the NHL counterpart, which is a major league, obviously, up here in Canada as well. So the CFL as a business has been majorly impacted by COVID-19 and the coronavirus pandemic. So that's why they're asking the government for this amount of money. Now there's certain ways that they would divvy it up based on if they were able to get part of a season in, or if the full season was canceled, obviously that's when they would go up to that ask of 150 million. But that's why the CFL needs this money is literally to be able to survive because right now the revenue streams have not gone dry, but they've swelled up pretty quickly because if there's no season, then literally all of your revenue streams are gone. TV is gone. Tickets are gone. Merchandise is gone. Your sponsors and partners are gone because it's all driven based around playing games. So what would happen in terms of costs incurred if a season was canceled, I understand that there's massive loss in revenue, but you also aren't flying jets around the country. You aren't paying players. If they're not playing games, you aren't buying ad time. There's all kinds of costs that fall off the table too. If a season's gone, do we really know what, uh, if a season's gone, what it would cost CFL owners? I don't think we know the exact details of obviously the teams that don't put their details publicly out there and the riders are the ones that everyone sort of points to because you can go and look up their financial details so i think you hit the nail on the head there that you know right off the bat you're not paying you know potentially five plus million dollars out there in player salaries although that's a whole entire different discussion in itself because i do think the players need to be subsidized in some way they got to get some money through this if they want to have them to come back and play let's say in 2021 if the whole year was canceled so you knock down the player costs, the fact that you don't have to bring those players up and house them for training camp and go through all those costs. And as you said, the travel cost and, you know, maybe even having some of the staff members in there. But you can't just have your organization 
sort of be on furlough for a year and then come back to it. There has to be a way that these franchises can have some money to keep going for the future. So even though your costs are down, I think what the money is there for that they're looking for from the government is just to literally keep the league alive. What uh, are we from cons- who you go ahead? Sorry, go ahead, Ray. Yeah, sorry, Pat. Um, are, are, are which owners are you concerned about not being able to pay costs for a year if it was going to go away? Well, I'm not necessarily concerned about owners not being able to pay those costs, but you know, there's a few teams. Obviously, you look at them: Montreal, Toronto, and BC being the main ones. That those owners have lost money for years. Now, MLSC is a little bit different in the sense of, you know, maybe that can be a tax write-off for them, and they're obviously making boatloads of money from the Raptors and Leafs. So let's leave them out of it. The Montreal Alouettes had a bunch of debt that had to be figured out, and those details still haven't been made public yet when the new ownership took over there. And in BC, it's pretty obvious to see that they're not packing the house and that, you know, Braley has owned multiple teams in the past and that he's kept that team afloat. So I don't think there's a worry that the owners – wouldn't be able to do it, but they're already losing money in those markets. So the thought of potentially losing even more, you've got to try to find a way to keep as many employees on the books if you want to keep the league going. Well, and the other interesting thing you bring up there is is the uh, concept of subsidizing players while they're not playing. And, and that's also important. Like If you're going to want to have a league to come back to, there's another cost that you know, I hadn't even really thought of until you, you came on with us here because that, that needs to be taken into consideration too. You have to, man. Those players are what everyone pays to go see, right? We talked about the games generating literally all of the revenue streams for the league. Well, the reason those games are played is because everyone's either clicking on the TV to watch them or paying their ticket and going and buying beer and, you know, all that kind of different stuff and team merchandise because they're a fan of the players. So I really do believe that if the CFL gets some of that money, whatever cut it is, that some of it has to go to the players. Even though they're not playing, you still need to be able to take care of your employees in this case. And they are not exactly employees of the league because they have their own union, but one of the main drivers of the league, you want to make sure that, they're there because let's say hypothetically, if you didn't have a season and you don't pay any of those players and they all go get jobs elsewhere, well, the league could have to start from scratch. Now that's a crazy scenario, but it's one that could be possible. Yeah. Final thought on, on this topic from who you've talked to uh, around the league. What, what's your feel as to whether or not the league is going to end up getting help from the government? Like, do you believe that is a, a likely outcome? Uh, I'm not a federal government reporter by any means or have been on the politics <laughs> I know. at all. But yeah, I will say that there is a sense that the $150 million ask was potentially a bad look for the league and the fact that it was a lot of money, that if it was a lesser amount, then you know maybe it wouldn't have looked as bad on the league. But I do think overall that there will be some sort of money. It's just the amount that's the key. Okay with uh, Justin Dunk from 3 Down Nation who's joining us here lots going on from a business standpoint in the CFL the original reason i wanted to bring you on was to preview tomorrow's uh, CFL draft which you've been all over at 3 Down Nation i'm looking forward to it what uh well before we get into the specifics what are we talking about for a draft class like from the outside and and you're more dialed into it than i am but from the outside this looks like a really really impressive deep class of canadian players but what about from your standpoint 
it's certainly an intriguing class. The depth of it, I'm not so sure it's quite there because I think there's a bit of a drop-off from the first tier to that next tier of guys. And I don't think the first tier is there in terms of what it might be in other years. So I think overall it's a solid class. I will say that literally at every single position, including quarterback, there are difference makers available in the draft. And to me, that's why it's so interesting. Calgary's got the number one pick. Your your feel would be what as to what they do with it? Take a player, go with uh, one of the guys at the top of the board, move down. Like what? What's your feel on what the Stampeders do at number one? Let's go through all the scenarios as if we were in John Huffnagel's office, and this is what I believe to be going on right now. Jordan Williams, a linebacker from East Carolina, is far and away the best prospect in the draft. A freak athlete, as an American, he would be a starter in this league at linebacker. So. They're looking at, you know, do we take Jordan Williams and slot him where Alex Singleton had played and last year Corey Greenwood took over and get him at a pretty good price now because all the CFL draft picks contracts are slotted? Or can we entice another team to come up the board and take that number one pick? They grab Jordan Williams. The stamps move down. Let's say hypothetically, even it's a trade with number two, the Argos. The Argos come up to one. They take Jordan Williams and then – the Stampeders are able to take Isaac Adiemi Berglund, an outstanding defensive lineman out of Southern Louisiana, who actually sacked Joe Burrow three times last year while he was at LSU, that they really love, a guy that can be potentially a core four special teamer. That means a guy that literally plays on all of your special teams and then also can potentially form a pass rush duo, I should say, with Connor McGuff, who signed there as a free agent going back to Calgary. So, I think those are sort of the options at play right now for the stamps at number one. If they do make the pick, is Jordan Williams the guy? If they keep number one, based on all I've heard and the fact that Williams just head and shoulders above everybody else athletically, and also from a production standpoint, there is a little bit of worry that you know maybe he's got a little rust on him because he hasn't played ball in a little while, but I think he can throw that out the window. If they take the pick, to me, at this point in time, currently, it's Jordan Williams. Guys, guys, a beast, and and it's funny, you know, the comparisons to Alex Singleton, who we all know is a former Stampeders first round pick as well. The comparisons go go well beyond just the off field stuff about being the the late eligibility to being a Canadian and being part of the Canadian draft, but also like inside linebacker, rangy, absolute tackle monsters. Talked to a couple of people in the know in the CFL that say maybe Singleton coming into the league was a little more polished than Williams was. But, I mean, there, there are a ton of similarities between these guys on and off the field. There are. Both had NFL looks before they came into the CFL. And that's the key with Williams is you know that he has this high-end talent but that he's not going to get looked at by the NFL. And I would agree with what you said, and that's what sort of the insiders and the scouts have been saying, is that Singleton, a more polished football player, but if you look at the sheer athletic numbers, Williams is no doubt the better athlete. Obviously what matters is what translates onto the football field, but there's so many similarities there. And you go back to that Singleton draft, and it's funny, you know, talk to some people around the league about it, and there's a theory there that maybe Calgary tried to put out a little bit of a rumor that an NFL contract was near for Singleton, and there actually was interest at that time, and they got him to fall down the board at six. This time they don't have to worry about that because they're at number one, Mm -hmm. but the whole sort of, as you mentioned, scenario and the way that it's very similar is pretty cool. A couple of other uh, 
interesting notes that, that you know what always fascinates me on this in the in the CFL is happened so close proximity wise to the NFL draft and you know you had a couple of Canadian players go in the NFL draft Chase Claypool goes to Pittsburgh in the second round Neville Gallimore out of Oklahoma goes to Dallas in the third round which that's that's high for both guys do either of these guys get taken tomorrow? Are, are they late-round picks? Do they fall completely off the board? What's your gut on Claypool, the receiver, and Gallimore, the DT? So I look at a comparison from a couple of years ago. Nathan Shepard was a defensive tackle out of Fort Hayes State. Good Canadian boy. Went in the third round to the New York Jets. He wasn't even drafted. He actually was on a neg list before he was put into the CFL draft. That's a whole other different discussion. So, as you mentioned, Claypool in the second, Gallimore in the third. I'd be a little surprised to see either guy get picked in the mid-rounds, maybe with a flyer in the late rounds, just because of the potential that, you know, Rena might not play football this year, and if something crazy happens to both of those guys in their NFL trajectory, that maybe one day you get your hands on them. But that Shepard comparison for me just makes it seem like, you know, unless you want to have their rights at least as an eighth-rounder, Maybe that happens, but I'd be kind of surprised to see if either one was drafted. Now, there's some other interesting ones that, that did not get drafted. Carter, Carter O'Donnell, for instance, at the U of A, he signed with Indy on a priority contract. Uh, Michael Heck signed a priority contract. Uh, there, there, there were some players that signed in the NFL after the draft. How do you see that affecting their positioning come the CFL draft tomorrow? That's a tricky one because there's no rookie mini camps or anything like that. So there might have been some of those invites that might have thrown a curveball into it too. But those guys that were signed after the NFL draft are pretty much going to main training camp. So you know you're not going to see them until September in a in a normal year, you should say, without coronavirus. So I think it doesn't really change their draft standing that much because they're in that upper caliber tier and we've seen over recent years that even guys that are signing as undrafted free agency NFL are still getting picked pretty high Jeff Gray with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers comes to mind he went eighth overall to the Bombers in the same year that he had signed an undrafted free agent contract and yes they had to wait a couple years to get him but it's paid off in the long run we've seen Ed Hervey when he was with the Edmonton Eskimos take Tavon Smith and Arjun Colhoun in the same draft both those players are now in the CFL. So I would see them still going high in the draft, but maybe not right at the top because if Carter O'Donnell hadn't signed that undrafted free agent contract, I think he's legitimately in the discussion to go number one to Calgary. Final guy I want to ask you about is the quarterback, Nathan Rourke, who coming out of the University of Ohio has put together some of the, the best college numbers we've ever seen from a Canadian quarterback. You're a former Canadian quarterback. This has been something that you and I have talked about many times, and that is a guy from this country being an everyday starter uh, as a professional QB. There's talk about the ratio changing down the road to maybe make it a little bit more uh, favorable to have Canadian quarterbacks on the roster. I'm just curious as to what Nathan Rourke's status is for the draft. We we don't see high quarterbacks go in this draft ever, and yet there are people talking about him going in the first round. What's your gut say about Nathan Rourke? Let me put this scenario to you. If Nathan Rourke was an American with the resume that he has from Ohio University, Pat, do you think he would be on a CFL team's neglist right now? Yeah, I do. 
So if we just look at Rourke as a quarterback, and I think there is some bias among bias, I should say, among the coaches in the Canadian Football League when they look at quarterbacks who happen to be Canadian, that for some reason it's different. Nathan Rourke could be a backup quarterback on six of the nine CFL teams right now, and you could argue even more than them. And his resume coming out of Ohio University is as impressive as a number of quarterbacks who are on Neglis right now. There's no doubt in my mind that Nathan Rourke is worth a first-round pick. When you're talking about a guy with what he's done at Ohio, led that team to three bowl victories when they barely had any in their history before he went there, and also the fact that he has that dual-threat ability, so he can come in right away and run your short yardage package, and the guy is a worker. In interviews, he's literally been taking notes and interviewing the teams himself. I have rarely, if ever, heard that. The guy is literally interviewing the teams to figure out what situation could be best for him. Obviously, he doesn't get to choose in the CFL draft, but just to understand what he's going to go into. So when you factor all of that in, oh, yeah, and the fact that he's Canadian – And under the new CBA, if you start as a Canadian quarterback, you count towards one of the seven starters required on all the CFL rosters. That is a no-doubt pick to me that he should be taken in the first round. His numbers at uh, at Ohio University are off the charts. Like he and and the improvement every year uh, from being a uh, a sophomore to a junior to a senior. Like the guy's legit. The guy can ball. Man, he really can. And the fact that he doesn't have this big ego about him either, like he literally doesn't want to be the center of attention. He understands he has to do it because he's a quarterback. But he's a great kid, puts the work in, like literally has his notebook out in these interviews. I just thought that was outstanding and sort of set him above the rest. And that if you give him the same time to develop that some of these other quarterbacks in our league now that are in the elite level, let's look at Bolivar Mitchell. And I'm not saying – He's at Bowie by Mitchell's caliber even when Bo came into the league, but Bo had some time to develop there in Calgary. If he goes to a program or a franchise, I should say, that allows him to develop, I think there are some great possibilities for Rourke in the CFL. Justin, good to talk to you, man. Good to catch up. Enjoy the draft tomorrow. Uh, great work covering everything going on in the CFL and the most bizarre time that we've ever seen. Appreciate it, brother. We'll, uh, continue, uh, we'll continue to follow along on three down. Thanks, buddy. Stay safe out there. You too, buddy. That's Jason, Justin Dunk, rather, from uh, CF, covering the CFL for 3Down Nation. 3downnation.com is uh, just absolutely slaying it with their content right now. Uh, head of the CFL draft tomorrow. Stampeders have the number one overall pick. Uh, Justin Dunk from 3Down Nation joining us on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. Bar may be closed to patrons during these trying times, but they are open for business. Pickup or delivery available by calling 403-248-3344. That's 403-248-3344. It's Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Strange times for sure. Sportsnet 960 The Fan is here for you. No sports, no problem. Pinder and Steinberg continues right now on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. It's Wednesday, which means it's time for our weekly chat with the one and only Jeff Snyder from Elevate Lacrosse. Hello, Snides. What's going on? How are we, Pat? I've been tuning in. It's been quite uh, quite the afternoon for you guys. Are you and Pinder okay? You guys were uh, duking it out a little earlier. You guys all right? 
Oh yeah, we're we're fine. We uh, that's that's the beauty of sports radio. You can have an argument on the air and and still be totally fine. Uh, we don't well, usually, sure. very rarely, do we take these things personally. No, sir. I just you know I got that. You know, dad gets upset when he hears the kids fighting. You know, I get a little <laughs> upset there. That's all. That's right. Sorry, pops. Uh, <laughs> what uh, what was your what's what's your take on the 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 conversation we had about the CFL? It's really interesting, man. I, I can see both sides, and you know, obviously, I'm a, a patriotic Canadian, and, and the CFL is, you know, is our league, and it is, it's, I think it's just a challenging time. I think the biggest concern for me in all of this, and I was having a conversation the other day, is who's paying for all of this? Like, this is, you know, when we're thinking about this, like, this is going to affect our kids, our grandkids, and, you know, ultimately, you know, taxpayers moving forward in the future, and, and you know, at the end of the day, whether you're you're uh, an NHL hockey player, a CFL quarterback, a you know a, a defender in the National Lacrosse League. Um, you know we're all we're all employees, and and there's lots of people who are losing their jobs. And everybody, collectively, you know, as a Canadian, I think we all are you know, making sacrifices for one another here. So I think that's the bigger picture: is is you know what does this look like as a whole for the country, and and what does this look like moving forward as a country, and how is this, you know, what are, what are we doing now to ensure that, you know, granted, this is a very micro problem that has a very you know, macro problem associated to it, um, you know, down the line here. So, you know, I, I, there are no answers and, and, you know, things need to operate accordingly, but, you know, are, are the same, you know, the, the same, I think, I think the, the airline component is there's lots of bailouts there, but there's, you know, there are lots of taxes there. What's the solution? I, I don't think there's the answer, but the debate, is super healthy. And, and so, you know, I think my answer to that is, is, you know, we are all employees on, on some level or another or business owners on some level or another. And, uh, you know, try and keep it, trying to keep things alive collectively is, is ultimately what we do as Canadians. It's, it's fascinating because, you know, you are, you're a former pro athlete and you own a sports company in this city and, and there's plenty of talk about, you know, what is sports place in all of this? What is sports place in a restart? Um, what is sports place in in getting the economy back going? All that type of stuff. What's uh, what's your feel on that? Oh man, uh, you know our, our our biggest priority is the you know the health and the well being of you know the the families and kids that participate in our program. So the last thing you know. The last thing that I think that we're ever focused on is getting back to business to generate revenue and, and at the same time putting the health and safety of the community and, and the people that invest in our program at large. So, you know, that that's ultimately the first priority. There aren't really any answers behind that just yet. Um, you know, obviously, the you know, this, this uh, there's so much to be learned about, about what's going on in this pandemic you know, the coronavirus looks like and, and how to battle it. Um, but, you know, for us, you know, I look at, I look at what we do and, and, you know, yes, we're a business. Yes, this is what we do. You know, we do what we love, but, but also, you know, the, uh, I think a big part of sports is, you know, what it gives to young people. Um, you know, again, I, I love kids sport just, just for their latest campaign, you know, like when, when you lose, you learn. And, and, uh, uh, you know, when we don't win, we learn. And, and, you know, what do we get? You know, there's a lot of people that, that, you know, in any sort of industry, whether you're a musician or an artist or, you know, you're in, you're in drama school or you're a student athlete, you know, there's all of these components are associated to the growth and the well-being of, of the people who are going to be taking over this country in the future. And that's, that's my biggest concern 
right now is what does that look like from a, a developmental perspective with kids in the future? Um, so business-wise, you know, we're no different than, you know, somebody who, who's a subway franchisee or someone who, you know, owns a car dealership or, you know, whoever is, you know, the, you know, if you're a, an owner of a professional sports team, everybody's doing, it, it's just a matter really of decimal places. Um, you know, I had a, a, a great conversation with, with John Bean once who, you know, said, you know, providing some direction for me when I was with the Roughnecks and, and commented that, you know, that, that my business is no different than anybody else's business. The only real difference is decimal places and expenses and top line revenue. And that's, and that's the truth. So, you know, we're all in this together. And, um, you know, for us, it's, it's, uh, we're lucky to work with kids and lucky to coach and lucky to be involved in sport. And, you know, yes, we, you know, we, we try to do that for our livelihood and to put, you know, food on the table. But at the end of the day, you know, what we truly get out of it is just seeing kids get to the next level and making a small impact in the direction of a young person. With Jeff Snyder from Elevate Lacrosse, who joins us on Wednesdays on the program, I it's uh, I, I feel for uh, I feel for younger athletes, the non uh, the non pro athletes who aren't able to finish their seasons, whether it be their hockey season, uh, finish their lacrosse season, or or get their uh, summer lacrosse season going, or their baseball season going, or their summer soccer season going. I I I feel bad for for young athletes who are having to you know potentially have an entire season of playing sports wiped out here what uh, you work with kids that's that's uh you know that's what elevates mandate is it's all about making uh making these better people and better athletes um so i, I I'm, I'm curious as to what your advice and your perspective is there well we get calls you know daily um from kids that are you know either just looking to vent or to chat or to ask for some direction and we've got kids that are still pursuing the NCAA. We had a kid uh, commit last week and, and hopefully have another one coming here in the next couple of weeks. And, you know, it, the reality is, is this is it. Like, you're in it. And, uh, you know, as an athlete, you know, you, you subscribe to, these, to this mentality of, of facing adversity when you compete, whether you're on a, on a recreational level, a grassroots level, or an elite level. And, you know, there's lessons to be taken from this at all times. And, and I think my, my biggest my biggest thing is just leaning in, you know, like there's nothing you can do about it. You've got no control over it, but your own environment. And, uh, and what we tell our kids is that, you know, this, at some point in time, this will pass. Are you going to be the, the individual who squanders their time with respect to your own personal development? And maybe that means just sitting in, in a room and reflecting on what you've done in the past. You know, maybe that means getting out and getting your stick in your hands. Maybe it means lifting some more weights, and doing what you can with your time to be prepared for when we get to start back up. Um, you know, the thing I, I was, I, I, I'm getting my tires changed and I can't hang out at the tire store. So I'm, I'm over at the, the Calgary soccer center and had a chat outside with some of their staff and, and just watching, you know, looking at, a, at an empty field, you kind of sit and look at this and you go, man, our, you know, I would hope that every young athlete that's aspiring to either compete recreationally or compete at a high level takes this time and realizes, man, that really sucked and I genuinely do not have control over you know my my opportunity to participate I only have control over my willingness to and and what kind of effort I'm going to put into that so this is going to make people better or people are just going to be the same and I think that what's really exciting about the student athlete population in Calgary and I just think our resiliency as a as a whole as a city is we're going to start producing some kick-ass athletes out of this and 
I'm excited to see what's going to come up of this over the next uh, few years. And, and um, you know, the, the, the fact that, that groups are going to be pragmatic and, and, you know, create further opportunities to train and get better. And, and the kids are going to jump on board with that. I'm, I'm very confident in it. What uh, what's the I know that you know I ask you this every week and it's a holding pattern for you as a business as as so many others. But what's going on at Elevate? I see you're uh, you've got lots going on on your Instagram over at Jeff Snyder. Tell us what's going on at Elevate Lacrosse. Yeah, we're you know we're trying to do things a little differently. I think we're exploring um, you know the idea of doing some some social social distancing and and some you know some very strict you know guideline training if we can. Um, you know, again, we don't want to, you know, there's a, there's, you know, there's a lot of perspective and perception, a lot of unknowns out there. So the last thing we want to do is, is rock the boat. Um, I think we've got a big priority in terms of the kids that are potentially going to try and get back to the NCAA in the fall, having not practiced or trained at all. Um, you know, we're looking at getting involved with those guys and then, you know, just trying to keep, keep kids active and lead. Um, you know, every week we send out a, uh, uh, a newsletter talking about tips, information about what's going on. Um, you know, talking about what you can do at home, how you can stay positive and engaged. And, and so that goes out to our membership. And, um, you know, we're, we're just here. We're, you know, we're here to have conversations with our kids and make sure that they know that, that uh, you know, we're in this uh, together and, and we're, we're not going anywhere and we're available for you to, you know, to be a part of, uh, uh, of our program, even if it's just a, a text or a phone call. So, um, you know, we feel super fortunate. It's keeping us busy. Um, you know, we've got lots of great people that are involved in our team and incredible families. And, um, you know, we're just trying to, we're trying to lead by example with respect to the sporting community, because I, you know, we truly believe that it is a vital part of, uh, of the direction of young people in our city and, and, um, you know, feel very fortunate to be able to do that as well. Good stuff, Snides. Appreciate it, pal. Uh, we will talk to you again next week. Hey, man, you guys are the best. I enjoy listening. Thank you for uh, continuing to do what you do and keeping us entertained. Thanks, Nigel. You're the best. You gotta, hey, make sure you apologize to Ryan, too. I thought you were kind of mean this afternoon. So. <laughs> I will do make that. Sure say you're sorry. All right, nothing we'll, left on We'll make that, up. Okay? Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Love you guys. We'll catch you soon. All right, buddy. Jeff Snyder from Elevate Lacrosse on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. The bar may be closed to patrons during these trying times, but they are open for business. Pickup or delivery is available by calling 403-248-3344. That's 248-3344. It's Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Pinder and Steinberg continues on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Let's go back in time and celebrate the amazing history of the Calgary Flames. Today in Flames History Starts. Now. On April 29th, 2006, the Flames and Ducks were breaking their 2-2 series tie in the Western Conference quarterfinals. The series was tied up after the Ducks took Game 4 in overtime, 3-2. Calgary was given a boost by the home crowd with Tony Amante scoring shorthanded Five minutes and 49 seconds in. Lanny continues to fight for it and bounces free. And it's picked up by Lombardi. He has Amani with him. Lombardi drops it up for Amani. Scores! Well, the captain, Jerome McGinley, would add one late in the first to make it 2 nothing. Back of the net for Aguila. He leaves it there for Lanko. Lanko gets it back for Ferentz. Ferentz lets the shot go. They score! I don't know whether Aguila touched it or not, but he was in front of and then again, a minute into the second period, giving the Flames a 3-0 lead that they would not relinquish. They win the game 3-2, taking a series lead 
three to two. Vesalius takes another look up front. He had Paulson all over him. In front, they score! And Gibbons from Wango! Jerome's Gibbons' eighth point in this playoff series, gone. Just a great play by Damon Blanco on the half wall, coming up with the point puck, and Jerome again all alone in front of the net. Today in Flames history, celebrating 40 years of Flames hockey in Calgary on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Uh, that was the last playoff game the Flames would win in 2006 because uh, the Ducks would win game six in overtime. Uh, I believe Christian Husalius had a breakaway in game six Juice. in overtime uh, and hit the post. And then uh, Ducks would win. And then game seven, they'd win at the Scotiabank Saddledome as well in what was a vomit-worthy performance from the home team. Yes. Overtime regular Robert still to this day, almost 15 years later, is not over that game seven performance. So where are we on the roadmap of hatred towards the uh, Anaheim Ducks or maybe on the like the hate-ometer? Are we idling? Are we like into the 3,000s? Are we in the red at this point in 06? Because, uh, you know, that streak at the Honda Center, clearly the the incredible hatred for Perry and the like. Um, would this have been peak duck hatred or did, was that still to come? I feel like it still there was more to come. I, I would suggest far more to come. Kessler and Bieksa weren't on that right. team. Um, that I think they still lose twice. I guess what fifteen and seventeen they'd bow to the Ducks. So that's probably exactly. And and yeah. I think that you know Perry was Perry was a guy that. I believe when he was at his peak, you hated to you hated when he was on the other team. But I think at the very least, you're like, yeah, I'd like that guy on on my team. I don't even know if Flames fans would be like, yeah, 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 I want uh, I want Kessler on my team. I, I just I can't imagine a Flames fan being like, yeah, Ryan Kessler, yeah, I, I'd like to have that guy in, in Flames silks. Uh, I just I can't see it. That's, so I think that with Getzlaff and Perry still there. And then you add on to that a little bit of uh, Ryan Kessler's smarm and Kevin BX's square head. <laughs> I, I just think that all those things combined Jeez. made them an extremely hateable team for a few for a few years. Square head. You realize he's like a he's a what would you say a um, someone who's working for the same company as you? Like he's. He's been doing some stuff with Sportsnet I, on the I, I think Kevin BX is an awesome, uh, awesome in his next gig, and and I, mean, and I thought that he he played stuff. the heel uh, he played the heel very well. But that was the uh, that was kind of the the big insult at the time was the square head. <laughs> he's got a very uh, he's got a, he's got a strong jaw. So uh, that was that was the. You know, the joke at the time when he was arch enemy number one of Flames fans in 2014, 2015, and 2017, I believe. Sorry, 2015 and 2017 because he was on the Canucks in 15, and he, uh, I remember the whole Michael Furland rivalry, and then in 2017 Ferkland. he was a member of the Ducks. Yes, Furkland. Um, so of all your coworkers with square heads, he'd be one of your favorites or least favorite? I would suggest probably my favorite. Okay. Very good. Just wanted to clear that up. Now that you know, getting checks cut from the same people. Okay. That's yes, because you've on... never taken a shot at a uh, at an employee. <laughs> no, no, I always you do. take well, you take shots at Brian Burke on a daily basis. It feels like. Uh, I haven't even mentioned Keegan Kanzig. I don't know why you feel the need to bring up Brian Burke. 
for at least didn't three or four a, days. Didn't you have a stymie <laughs> Steinberg on Brian Burke's worst moves? No, it was a collection of trades. Uh, they, there were some bad ones. Maybe it was a top five worst Burke trades. I'm not sure. Um, you know, I got a foggy memory, Pat. We're here to entertain and keep things light, a little levity, and I'm sure, uh, you know, Mr. Burke would enjoy, you know, the, I guess the, uh, the driving force behind it all, which is to just have some scintillating sports talk. It's just, you know, that is very of your character. It's more of mine, the scorehead comment. Scintillating sports talk. Not necessarily what is coming up next. Wild Card <laughs> Wednesday instead oh. coming up next. Pender and Steinberg, Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Let's take a spin and find out all the things we never wanted to know about our afternoon show. It's time for Wild Card Wednesday, Sportsnet 960, The Fan. It's Wild Card Wednesday on a Wednesday. Welcome back to the program. Final hour, top of the hour, in conversation with Ron McClain. Uh, today, Ron, in conversation with sports power couple, uh, Olympic skier Lindsey Vaughn and New Jersey Devils defenseman P.K. Subban. Uh, they are Ron's guests on In Conversation tonight at the top of the hour. And then following that, we're going back to December 12th of this season. Really fun game. Electric atmosphere at the Scotiabank Saddledome. Good comeback win for the Flames. Uh, Flames and Maple Leafs from December 12th is what you'll hear on our Flames Rewind tonight. But right now it's time for Wild Card Wednesday. We've got Logan Gordon. we got Ryan Pinder. we got Pat Steinberg. we got our casino. We've got our... Uh, Big slot machine with five categories. We've got pop culture, personal life, career, sports, and wild card. And we've got Logan ready to go first, batting leadoff. You're up, Mr. Gordon. Let's rock this thing. Personal life. All right, gentlemen. Uh, It's a different question for both of you, but it still applies. Uh, Ryan, because you're already married, you can give us a more clear answer. But, Pat, how much would you pay for an engagement ring? Well, if I were ever ever in that spot, I, I think I would probably... I would probably go with the the old adage, whatever it is. Pinder, you'd know this better, but what is it? The two month salary, three 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 month salary, something like that. It's like forty bucks prob- in radio. I I, I mean, yeah. Uh, here's a uh, here's your two hundred dollar ring, hun. Um, I, I think that I would probably adhere to that if I were gonna go down that road. I would probably, you know, I, I'd probably have it in mind. Um, a year or two down the road and start saving for it so that I could adhere to that rule. That's probably what I would do if I were to think about it. Um, I'd, I'd be curious as to what Pinder did um, for for his engagement ring because that, that's the rule, three months or two months salary, whatever it is. Obviously, I've never been married. What, what did you do for your engagement ring? Well, it is the two-month rule is what you're referencing. I didn't even think about that, but I was thrust into a spot where – I was, uh, you know, going to propose to a woman that's older than me and was much further along in her career and had, uh, you know, a much better earning power than I had uh, and continues to, Uh as long as this pandemic ever ends. Uh Um, But I think it actually turned out that I was pretty much right on around that two-month rule in terms of the, the rule of thumb was what about what I spent, so... I feel like now that I look at it, I'm like, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Logo? 
I yeah, I think that's. I mean, I guess it's it's all tradition, right? I mean, I guess if that's where you're where you're going off of, but I mean, you know, it, it also. Like, I wonder about it, how it applies to if you're, you know, like Ryan, you know, in radio, and you're not making that much, or if you're making a lot, does that rule always apply? I don't. I don't know how that goes. I'm like you, Pat. I've, I've yet to be married or come anywhere close to that, and I don't know the prices of these things. So, I mean, I guess I'd probably go off of the traditional way. And, you know, you know, if Ryan's saying that the two-month thing is the way to go, then that's probably the way I would lean to. And you know Just what? Like, it's not like Jeff Bezos is getting, like, a $80 million ring, I don't think. Like, there's got to be different rules. And you know what it is, Logan? It's, it's just a, a token of your love. So I know the design was very important for my wife and how things look. Got something custom made. It's very exciting. And, uh, yeah, so there's – I don't think people are going to look at the price tag and say they like it or don't like it, right? Text line says way too much, five grand max. Um, so somebody says, is it two months of your salary or hers? That's a good question. I think it's of your salary. Um <laughs> That's, that's I, a really good answer. It's probably made. Women didn't work. Uh, no shot at them, but society at the time when the rule was made. So, yeah, it is. You're definitely going way back on, you know, you're, you're taking a nod from people centuries ago if you're going by that rule. Right? <laughs> it's true. Somebody suggests that even two months' salary is $5,000 on minimum wage. Uh, it's fair enough. Um, and finally, two-month rule was made by diamond companies. Cost isn't everything, which is kind of what you're Probably saying true. is the only yeah. one of us three who's actually bought an engagement ring. So uh, I, I would probably do two things. I would probably start saving, um, you know, early on with an eye to a, an engagement date, and B, I'd probably, you know, talk to the person who I was going to give that ring to to see what her parameters are. Like, hey, if this were to happen, what would you want? And, and if she was like, I really don't want you to do two-month salary. We've got a, a future to prepare for. What about kids? Like, I don't want that going into a ring. Then I probably wouldn't do that. I, I might uh, back off on that. So I think that also probably plays into the conversation, too, uh, yeah, being so a marriage and engagement engagement expert myself here's an example so the ring that i got my wife has a sapphire on each side and then a big sapphire in the middle the twins were already born they're both september birth i'm september birth those are our birthstones and then a bunch of smaller diamonds surrounding it on the top and around the side so they would that was symbolic of a lot of things and then you know if i win the lottery or you know pat leaves all of his money to me and his will and tragically gets hit by a bus then I could always take out that sapphire in the middle and drop in a massive diamond. Fair enough. Because I know I'm in your will. I've done a little research. Damn it. How did you know? You're my, you're my sole beneficiary. Uh, okay. Good stuff, Logo. I've got, uh, I've got next poll. Let's rock and roll. Career. Uh, where's my career question? Um, okay. Can you think back and wrap your head around how bad you were, say, five years ago doing this job? Like, talking on the radio, being in sports radio. Think back. Uh, say, say five for you, Logo, because you're, you're newer at it. For, for Pinder and I, think back like five, ten, fifteen years. Think back to how bad we were 
even half a decade or a decade ago doing this job? I will take you back to my early days in sports talk. Now, I'd been a play-by-play broadcaster and a radio show host and done a lot of things on my own for, I want to say, like almost a decade. 06, 07, all the way through till the year after the lockout. So I want to say, what was that, 13, 14? And that's when I started here. Five years of the morning shoot, two years with you, Patty, coming up in the fall. But I was in a spot where I was a one-man show and I'd have a color guy or I'd rotate different people through or, you know, you'd interview people, but it was always you were the guy in charge. So when I started on a morning show that had a former NHLer and a host who'd been doing it forever, I mean, I think they probably wanted to shoot me out of a cannon for the first year and a half because I just wasn't really good at being the third man in so much as trying to run the show and set everyone straight because, you know, I'm always right, which is just a curse in life, Pat. And uh, it was probably really tough to listen to it in a lot of junctures. But I do feel like we hit stride for many years, like three, four, and five on that morning show. I thought we just had some phenomenal radio and, you know, our roles evolved and we learned how to play into and off of each other. Um, I feel like those were really, really, really good years to show. Some really good, memorable, funny stuff. Logo? Uh, yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that because I think you know, two days ago was my four years here at, at 960, which is crazy for me to think about because I started uh, when I was still at Mount Royal. I did my second year at Mount Royal while working nights and weekends here. Um, and at the time, I still had to do uh, year one at Mount Royal was doing our own radio show and incorporating news broadcasts and all that sort of stuff. And I, uh, the the biggest thing that comes back to me is just how goofy and how non seriously I, I used to take things. And uh, you know, it goes back to I remember doing the college radio show. We had to do a newscast once, and there was something that caught both of us, and we just had like a laughing fit on air, and we didn't actually get through the newscast and. Uh, and I'm sitting there thinking, like, man, I would never hopefully do that now in, like, such a serious situation. And, you know, to think about in four years, you know, crazy enough to uh, to think that a few weeks ago, I guess almost a month and a bit now, you and me were at the Saddle Dome doing, you know, regular afternoon shows during a Calgary Flames season. For for me, it's it's definitely come a long way from starting doing just, you know, updates and stuff, weekends and overnights here at, at 964 years ago. So, that's probably where it would be for me is uh, just a, a progression over the last four years here. I just remember, like, I look back, and, and I think that we probably all are guilty of this in, in this industry and, and, and probably any other industry, but, but certainly I think in this industry um, most people who get into it are, are guilty of this, and I, I certainly was at a younger age. Less so today, but I don't think completely not like this today, but I, I think that you're always – of the opinion that like, well, I'm, I'm capable of doing more. And, and I I don't know if, um, if I I have that anymore, but certainly at at different times, I always felt like, well, I should be, I should be doing this. And if I were in that position, I, I would be doing this so much better than person A or person B or, or they should give me more of an opportunity. Don't they know what they're missing? And, you know, Kirsch would be the first one to vouch for this type of stuff. But I think back to when I actually got those opportunities and how bad I was at it. Like it's like, no, you, you know what? Like all those times that Rob Kerr or, or Kelly Kirsch told me that, nah, you know what? You, you're probably not ready to do what you think that you're ready to do. 
You know what? In in hindsight, they're right. I wasn't. I remember the first time I ever hosted a call-in show. Um, it was, uh, I believe it was game three of the Flames and Blackhawks, or maybe game one of the Flames and Blackhawks from 09, and Kirsch was like, Yo, I didn't, you're working hard, and, and you sound okay on the air, so uh, you can do an update. Let's, let's give you a shot at hosting a Flames call-in show. It was an afternoon game, I believe. And so because it was an afternoon game, uh, we, we had some morning coverage. So I think I did a call-in show from 9 a.m. till 11 a.m., and I had no idea what I was doing. I was terrible at it. Um, and and I, I, I biffed it in a huge, huge way. Uh, and I look back, and I'm like, I wasn't ready to do that. And first opportunities I got to host shows, whether it was a Stampeders pregame show or, or an afternoon show, I no way was I ready to do that on a full-time basis. My takes were awful. My prep was awful. Uh, I, it was it was just basic and and low-hanging fruit stuff. It's like, well, I, I the Flames lost last night because they fell down four nothing in the first period. Like, oh, really? That's this is what we come to sports radio for to listen to this type of trash. So yeah, I I, I can't. I it, it actually is is hard to. It gives me anxiety thinking about how bad I was, you know, seven, six, seven, eight years ago at doing this job. It really, and I'm not saying that I'm incredible at it now, but like I was really bad before. Uh, at least I feel like maybe I, I'm, I'm a little bit more where I, I belong now. But back then, I, I, there, there were some times I was in way over my head. The thing about this career, guys, is that we get to watch at home and listen to on the biggest platforms the people that are best at it and they make it seem so So easy easy. and so natural like roger millions is a great example like the guy would never flinch under fire like how easy is that job oh look this period brought to you by this potato chip oh yeah score and win okay send it up to the booth like that must be so easy my goodness you get down into the tunnel when the fans are going rabid in the playoffs and the lights are out. There's a bright light on you. Thousands of people are screaming. The officials are walking by. And you got to do an intro, you know, ad-libbed without stumbling around. I mean, he and Leslie, like that job, they make it look so easy. And it is so not. I really do uh, respect how hard that is on TV. And I think the same thing when you talk about filling hours of sports content. You're like, oh, that must be great. You just talk about sports all day. It's like, oh, there's a fine art to it. Because when it's not done well, it sounds awful. It's true, and sometimes our show sounds awful, but I think most of the time it doesn't. Uh, How'd it sound from uh, two to two thirty today, Pat? I quite thought I thought it probably sound pretty darn good. That's what that's uh, what sports radio is all about. Now, there you go. Put put you and I together on the air full time nine years ago, probably uh, probably not as good a show. <laughs> we both were way no, worse but... at what we're doing. <laughs> I don't even want to think about it. Uh, all right, Pinder, you got the last one. Let's go. Let's go. Here we are. Come on. Come on. Wild card. All right. So we know what's going on on the morning show. They have been running like March Madness-esque brackets. Yes. First potato chips, now chocolate bars. I want your most heated chocolate bar and or potato chip take okay be it like dislike we're aware of the brackets if people aren't you can find them on twitter will Nalt, boomer cron jason they've all got links to it um i believe they're into the uh, final 
eight, I want to say, of the Yes, they're into the uh, final eight. The Elite Eight. So, you know, that's topical. It was chips last week. Who knows what it'll be next week? Uh, Drive-through morning sandwiches? I don't know. But give me your best or most impassioned plea regarding a potato chip or a chocolate bar. Well, mine's easy because it is. It has been somewhat controversial. Um, Will asked me to rank the thirty-two, and I I ranked caramel is my thirty-two. Uh, I I despise the caramel bar. I, I have no time for it. It is boring. It is overrated, and I just if if you were to put one in front of me, I wouldn't eat it. It's it, it's it's like it's just it's not. It's not something that I enjoy. It's like it's it's gooey. You get it all over your hands. The taste is very boring. Uh, so I just I, I got no time for caramel, and, and it made Riley mad. It made Boomer mad. I think it, it got under. I mean, everything gets under Will's skin, but I think that. Uh, uh, kidding, Will. Uh, but I think it, I think it made everybody mad. I think that uh, I think that everybody was a little uh, a little rankled by me ranking thirty two caramel. Riley's uh, on a Twitter rampage about it because he thinks that I gave my, me single hand gave caramel a bad slotting, um, even though caramel's reprehensibly into that elite eight. I, just, I don't like caramel bars. Like at Halloween, the only things that would be left in my Halloween bag would be the mini caramel bars and just the the weak ass bags of chips, the mini bags of chips. You know, like those are the only things that are left. It's like, no, I don't want a day, uh, a three week old bag of mini sour cream and onion ruffles. I just don't want that right oh, now. I want, yeah. I want Mr. Big, or I want. I'm not even saying Mr. Big's my favorite, but like, I want, I want like the prototypical Snickers or Mars, or like I want, I want the good chocolate bars. I don't want the crappy chips, and I don't want the, uh, I don't want the caramel. So yeah, that's my hot take. Okay, and by the way, I do have it in front of me: the Steinberg Top Five. Peanut M&M's, Wonder yep. Bar, Snickers, Mars, Butterfinger. Those are all very, very rich and sweet. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a theme at the top. Uh, my top five included peanut butter cups, Reese's, Coffee Crisp, Kit Kat, Crispy Crunch, and Crunchy. Ooh, so you, like you, like the, that, you like the crunch. That honeycomb stuff, yeah. Logan, what, what, what's your hottest uh, chocolate bar and or chips take? Uh, I'm, I'll admit, I did see the brackets, and I, I'm reviewing them now because I, I haven't kept up with them as, as well as I should have. Um, my first take is that uh, Miss Vicky's jalapeno chips, uh, first of all, being an 11 seed and being kicked out by a trash flavor like sour cream and onion uh, is deplorable, and you guys should be ashamed of yourselves for voting through uh, a flavor like that. Miss Vicky's jalapeno chips are fantastic, and I'm very glad to see a Miss Vicky's representative win the chip bracket. I'm all for that. Um, but I would probably say that my most controversial take is uh, maybe the opposite of Pat Steinberg, whereas he would rank caramel number 32. Uh, Coffee Crisp, for me, being a one seed, is absolutely atrocious. I don't, I've never had a sip of coffee in my life. I hate, I don't like it, anything about it. Why would I want coffee in a chocolate bar? That's just dumb. I don't understand why that would be the most appealing chocolate bar to anybody. Um, I've never had coffee. I don't intend on having any coffee. So a coffee chocolate bar to me is just one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. No, but you've you've had one. You've tried one, right? This no. is just the speculation. You had one. <laughs> no, <laughs> I love it. I Why love would it. I? I've never had coffee. It really, I've never I, had logo. I'll, I'll say I've this. Never had. Give I've it never... a try because I hate coffee too. I don't drink the stuff, but 
coffee crisp doesn't really taste like coffee. It's kind of it, it tastes it's got like it tastes like the most chocolatey coffee you've ever had. It tastes more like hot chocolate than it does coffee. It um it's like Duke. That's how pow- powerful and popular coffee crisp is in the bracket. They're a one seed. They're going to dominate and rip their way through the region. Like it's been a story really for me about Kit Kat and coffee crisp and our special Canadian prizes that we're so lucky to have. So, uh, Logan, that is a hot take. It's just total garbage. What's yours? I think coffee crisp would be garbage. <laughs> I know you do, but you haven't tried it. So you don't really have a leg to stand on. Um, Oh, it's funny. I, I was very excited to ask this and not to answer it. I I just, what's going on with these coconut chocolate bars? Bounty, Mirage, like, what? We're, we're, no, no, go away. And I, I got to about 22 on the list, Pat, and that's at the point where I'm like, I don't want them anymore. If it's in front of me, I say no. It's not even like ranking all these good things. It's like now it's at the point where you're taking away satisfaction from me. You're not giving me less. You're taking away some. I have none. I'm losing happiness. So I just, I had no time of day for the, the coconut chocolate bars. It's funny you mentioned that. I, I was thinking that last night. I was uh, filling out some grocery orders, uh, doing the other job, and uh, somebody ordered 15 packs of Bounty. Like, it, there, there's, these, there's these packs of Bounty minis. So essentially yeah. they're just the chocolate bar cut into little bite-sized pieces, and they're these bags, like 300-gram bags. Somebody ordered 15 of them. I was like, who needs 15 300-gram bags of Bounty? I was, uh, and not like if it was the paper towel, sure, but the chocolate bar? Come on. I, I couldn't get my head around huh. it. I had a lot of trouble filling that order. And apparently Mirage doesn't have coconuts, so that's how familiar I am with the Mirage product line. Hmm. Hmm. But, yeah, Bounty. Um, there you go. That's a, that's a fair question. And the chocolate bar bracket continues tomorrow I, uh, into the elite eight. I can tell you what's left right now. Coffee crisp against caramel one versus nine seed Pat. No, no stranger to uh, where we're going to go on that one. Twix yeah. against peanut M&Ms. That is a big matchup. Uh, a four and a five seed Kit Kat against O Henry. A couple big names. I think and then Kit Kat wins that easy. I think so too. And Reese's Peanut Butter Cups against Arrow. It's not a bar, but the cups are going to be tough to unsee, is my guess. Yeah, I'm not a big Arrow guy either. Nah, whatever. Ooh, bubbly chocolate. So mm-hmm. impressive. Isn't, right, that essentially what, isn't that essentially what Mirage is? Mirage is just a poor man's Arrow, if I'm correct. I think that's the case. I don't even know. Uh, good questions. Uh, we might do it again on Friday. We might not. We don't know what's happening. I can tell you tomorrow on the program, uh, two very special guests. 2.30, Derek Ryan, Calgary Flames. 3.30, Chris Jericho is on the show tomorrow. I am fired up for Jericho. What? Fired up. JR, what's going on? Jericho, Y2G. Wait, this has been Wild Card Wednesday on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. When Jericho, easy, Logan, why you got to be a jerk? Uh, when Jericho made his WWF debut, and I want to say 1999, Watch it was game. my biggest markout wrestling moment ever. Like, it was so cool. I was at a, I, I will be sure to tell him this story tomorrow um, when he joins us. So, yeah, Chris Jericho, okay, 330, now. Derek Ryan, 230. Correct me if I'm wrong. The Rock 
was uh, in the you ring when he 100% made his debut. 100% correct. I am not the wrestling guru, but I was uh, ripping through the YouTubes and definitely went down a Jericho and Rock um, wormhole the other night. And it was he like got him with the classic. What'd you say your name is? I am. It doesn't matter what your name is. It doesn't matter. <laughs> in uh, front of the rocks, millions and millions of fans. Which <laughs> then, of course, Bo Levi Mitchell ripped off uh, for the Bo Show. Don't tell oh, Bo. Oh, uh, okay. Pender and Steinberg continue still to come this hour. If you missed our chat with Ron Sutter, we'll play that again. Uh, but lots still to get to as we continue in conversations at the top of the hour. Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Two guys in different spots staying at home, but still talking on the radio. It's a miracle. Pinder and Steinberg is only on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. All right, welcome back. It is Pinder and Steinberg from our homes. Hope you're being safe. You're enjoying this weather. Pat, where are we at temperature-wise? Is this going down today? Let's take a quick look here. We are at 21. Oh, my goodness. We finally did it! Did we do it? Yep. We'll wait for the official word. Uh, it has been 219 days since it was officially 20 degrees in Calgary. You've made it, Calgary. You've done it. The good times are ahead. Let's uh, hope uh, we can stay safe and get back to uh, life as was normal prior sooner rather than later. Okay, Flames. News today. Patty, uh, we had been waiting on a new transfer agreement with the NHL and some of the European leagues. And now that we had the news yesterday that it has been in some cases extended and for some other nations, uh, a new one has been created. We're starting to see the signings flow through and get announced. And uh, the Flames have added a right shot defenseman, something that certainly has been on their shopping list for a while. Yeah. uh, And they've been linked to this guy going back to last week, but uh, Swedish right shot defenseman, Johannes Kinval has officially signed a two year entry level contract with the flames. What I find interesting on this one is that Kinval is going to play next season in Sweden before coming to North America. So he won't be a member of the flames or, or have a chance to be a member of the flames until the 21, 22 season. He will stay with HV 71 in Sweden's top domestic league next year, uh, play as a 23 year old there before coming to North America as a 24 year old, uh, which I find really interesting and, 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 and not saying it's a bad thing. I think it's actually, you know, it's a, a really uh, pragmatic, and and strong way of thinking about things you know letting not not rushing a guy in letting him continue to develop and get a little bit more size and strength in sweden before coming over to north america just think it shows you flames have added some depth in their blue line and and you know they, they've been able to make that position somewhat of a, a position of strength over the last number of years so they don't feel the need that they have to rush a guy over so i found that really interesting so he will not play next season in the nhl kinval won't uh, make his north american debut at least as the plan stands right now until the fall of 2021 well and the other thing that i i started thinking about was we also caught wind, some reports suggesting that depending on how things go with the pandemic, that the regular season next year might not start till December for the NHL if a continuation of the regular season and a playoff run a little later than we thought. And if you're Kinval, the player, or someone who's invested in his development, do you really want him not playing the sport from mid-March until showing up at a training camp in late November or December. That's a long time away from the sport. And if Sweden, 
there's one thing we know about how that country's approaching this pandemic. It's that they've been more business as usual than almost any other first world country um, on the planet. So I would expect the CHL is likely to start on time. So if this player, you've seen good development and it's a good fit with HK71 uh, and you know that they're more likely to start on time as compared to some other leagues, he could be playing hockey for two, three months before the NHL even gets going. And at the conclusion of said SHL season, potentially could even show up in Calgary. So I think when you factor in the pandemic angle as well, it keeps a good young hockey player in a spot where he's been improving. Uh, And without any question marks about scheduling, or at least the question marks aren't as big in Sweden as they would be, say, for a North American league at this point. I uh, I wonder if there there might be you know some more of these type signings to come. They they got Emilio Peterson signed to his entry level deal. Uh, Johannes Kinval uh, was signed to a deal. You asked Ronnie Sutter earlier today about Dustin Wolf coming off another really good season in effort of the Western Hockey League. I, I wonder if you know at some point down the road in the not too distant future we get news about. Dustin Wolf signing his entry level contract. So there are, uh, you know, I just, I, that, that's just, it would, it would definitely make sense knowing the season he's coming off of. So uh, I, I wonder if there's some more of those type news items that we hear here in the next little while. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're, you're on the right page on, on that. I think there's a reason all these signings are happening right now. So if there are more players coming over from Europe and free agency, you'll probably hear about it sooner than later. And if there are players that have been drafted that are in that window where you want to sign them, well, why did they sign Peterson now? It's probably for whatever reasons those are, there's reasons for other guys to sign now. So we'll see if there isn't some more news this week or next week. Up next, Ron Sutter is uh, with player developments of the Calgary Flames, but he's also part of hockey's first family, the royal family of the Sutters. Some great stories with Ronnie coming up next on Pinder and Steinberg. Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Back to Pinder and Steinberg, Calgary Sports Talk in the afternoon. Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Okay, top of the hour, Ron McLean in conversation with P.K. Subban and Lindsey Vaughn, a true sports power couple. Uh, that's coming your way at the top of the hour, then 6 o'clock tonight. It is Flames Maple Leafs from December 12th of 2019. That's our Flames Rewind game this evening. Uh, let's check in with Ron Sutter in player development with the Calgary Flames, but we got some outstanding stories about the Sutter family with Ronnie. A thousand NHL games. He and Rich Sutter are twin brothers. Great stories about Rich and Daryl and uh, Brent and Dwayne and so on and so forth some some really good stuff with uh, Ron Sutter when he joined us a little earlier today and we started by uh, playing a little quarantine game with him as to uh, the the rest of the brothers who would you rather quarantine with in different situations here's Ron Sutter from earlier today so if you got to pick a cook which brother are you taking uh well I would have to say we're all fairly handy um which brother would I be taking yeah for food, uh, for for like being a chef like type guy, or just like a straight up man like barbecue, we're all probably good better at the man like barbecue type guy. Straight up uh, chef like, I don't know if I could pick any of them. Might be you then. That's kind of how those. Probably, work it pro- it'd probably be me because we're more in tune with uh, with what's going on with uh, all the health stuff, and you know, with uh, me and I have the younger kids and. Um, 
you know, their nutritional value needs and all that. I'm probably more up sure. on that than I'd say because of, because of my younger kids. I like it. Good answer. Okay. So now we got to think about which piece of property we want to be on. Whose estate, house, ranch, apartment, where are you going there for a quarantine partner out of your brother's? I'd have to say probably, um, well, we have a home in Montana, which I can't get to. So that sucks. Um, <laughs> that doesn't so I next would probably be Brent's Lake House up at Silver Lake. Oh, I like that. Good answer. Okay. Who's the tidiest roommate of the bunch? You don't want a slob living with you, quarantined with you. Uh, tidiest roommate. Um, probably be Richie. You'd know. Twins, right? That's that's a guy you got to yeah. go read on. Probably shared a room yeah. a few times, eh? Yeah. Uh, Anyone got any BO, body odor, bad habits you want to stay away from that you don't want that in a quarantine? No, I don't think there's any issue with that. Bad habits? Um, <laughs> maybe happy hour starting too soon some days. <laughs> now, who, who do you want for happy hour? Who do you want to stay away from? Like, you got to. Well, I wouldn't want to stay away from. I wouldn't want to stay away from any of them because okay. our happy hours together are really good. <laughs> you know I, the more I, i'm talking to you the more i think you guys need to be in one big bubble together get all the crews together that that's got to be a win right you go, well, for go sure to Brent Slate and get everyone together that's how you quarantine the only thing is that if our wives are with us um <laughs> there might be a problem you need a divorce lawyer or two huh yeah <laughs> All right, great stuff. Uh, Ron Sutter's with us, player development with the Flames, and, of course, one of the Sutter boys. Tell us where you were when uh, the pandemic struck. Uh, I'm counting. We're at day 49 of the sports apocalypse right now. Uh, we, were, we were back home in Calgary. Um, I just finished up uh, some travel, I think, about a week and a half before, and um and i actually just just was kind of laying out the map wise as far as what was going to happen for uh, junior and college playoffs and um uh, i actually had one one trip booked another one in the works and uh ended up uh, having to pull a pin on all that so um that's that's where i was i was right here at home in calgary not good um what how quick was it for you that everything grinded to a halt? I know that uh, we'd kind of caught wind. Maybe the, that trip to New York, we weren't be able to get uh, Lou and Derek there to call the games. Maybe it would come off monitors, and then poof, it was gone. The season was over. Uh, I can't imagine that's fun to drop all these plans to go visit different prospects, players, and then all of a sudden they're all torn up and all these leagues have been shut down or paused. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the hardest part is, is you know, your, your work is pretty much done your main line of work is pretty much done on the season for the kids. Now it's just following up and seeing them play and, and more pressure like situations and wanting to see how they react. Um, you know, the highs and lows of the game, you know, the pressure comes with it and see how they handle it all. But uh, it's, it's part of the game. It's um, you stay in touch with the kids. Um, but, you know, they're, they're more bummed out than we are, obviously. Um you know, because they're the ones that have to put the blades on. But at the same time, it's disappointing because you, you want to see how they, you know, because their careers are advanced and you want to see uh, how close they are to maybe becoming uh, pro players. 
Um, you want to see how they react in certain situations during playoff time. And and for for us, it's it's a fun time of year for us too to watch them. And, and as much as it was when you were a former player, like you enjoy these times, you, you miss it. Uh, just that uh, the fun of being at the rink, it's it's easy to go, much easier to go to the rink at this time of year to watch games. Ron Sutter's with us, uh, player development for the Calgary Flames, and of course one of the Sutter boys here on Pinder and Steinberg. Ronnie, tell tell us about how hard this has been just on on the Sutter family. Rich works in hockey. Uh, Dwayne works in hockey. You work in hockey. Uh, Brent's with the Rebels. Like you said, there's there's so many of of you that still are involved full time in hockey, and and now there's no hockey. Just as a family, oh. how, how difficult has this been? Well, you know, and Daryl was involved with Anaheim. Um, yeah, I think he Darryl's the box, from, yeah. recently from a trip. Uh, Brian was coaching Anisfail. Um They were getting, I think they were getting ready for playoffs, and they were just, had actually, they were just getting ready to host a big fundraiser, I believe, later that week, I think on the Friday after this all happened. So, um, you know, all the plans and everything that goes into that, everything that ended up being canceled because of the number of people you were restricted to have, and then obviously they were going to have more than more than 100. So, um it's it's a bummer. Uh, I think you just kind of sit back and say, well, you know, it's, it's what's going on right now is in someone else's hands, and we have to adhere to what we're supposed to be doing. And and confidently wise, you know, you know that they're doing their best. The best thing about the older brothers like Brian and Daryl and and um, Brent is they got they got farms. It's a little bit easier to you don't have to be housebound. Right. Um, you know they're they've learned to uh, like us. You're you're much more restricted, and you make f- definitely fewer trips to the store. And and you know, like Daryl and I were talking, you said you know just it makes people realize you know everything that you think you really need to do, maybe you don't really need to do it all the time. You know, just uh, I think that's part of growing up in the country and growing up on the farm is that you only made one trip to town a week to the grocery store in in the city folk you probably go freaking every other day so it's uh lessons uh i think we maybe can handle a little bit better because we Mm -hmm. understood that part of it knowing that uh you have the necessity things at home you don't have to be running the store every other day for something so um it hasn't been easy it's been a challenge but i think we've all handled it well and i think everybody in general the general public for the most part have handled it well it's funny you talk about how um, how quickly this all came about. Like, I want to say two or three days before everything got shut down, I was uh, chatting with Dwayne on the phone, and, and he's starting up a hockey school, and we were talking about different ways that we could get the word out about that. And then uh, literally two days later, he texted me. He goes, well, maybe it's not so good, such a good time to be talking about a hockey school because there's so much else going on in the world. It just, it, it really did happen in the snap of a finger. How, like, how, how often are the brothers in contact right now? Like, are you guys talking on a regular basis? Are you doing any of the the Zoom calls where you can all be on at the same time? What's, uh, what's the family? No, you know, what? we like? have not done a Zoom call all of us together. Um, I think that would be hard for Brian to to figure out how to get on that. Um, uh, I think, um, you know, we have stayed in touch. Like I said, I talked to Daryl recently, Dwayne's, you know, basically in my neighborhood. So, uh, talked to him every couple of days. Um, I've actually talked to Brent a few times, uh, and Richie as well. So, 
I probably talked to Gary, our oldest brother, more than any, anybody. He was out in Kona. So, um, you know, you just stay in touch, make sure they're doing good, check in on them, and shoot them a text every other day just to say hi and keep up. But, um, uh, like I said, it's, I know the guys are up, up on the farms and the ranches. They're, they're busy at this time of year, too. So, um, you just, you know, we are a close group of brothers, and uh, we, we still do stay in touch. And I think we probably hear more about what's going on in our lives through our own kids. <laughs> Uh, the the NHL has done uh, a bunch of different Zoom calls. They they had like the the Blues together to watch Game Seven of the Stanley Cup Final from last year. Like I, the, the NHL could probably do good work if they got all the Sutter boys together and did one of those for everyone to see. That would be uh, that would be entertaining. Yeah, we would we would like that. I know my son and I we got on a Zoom call here. I think a couple weeks into it with him and his um, couple of his teammates and then. Um, us dads that got to know each other from our, his junior days and everything before we knew it by the end of the night I think four hours later we had eight players and eight dads on the Zoom call so that, nice. that was fun uh, so I, I'm it's, it's funny because we're talking about the family dynamic now I just it's I, I'm fascinated by the the family dynamic throughout the uh, throughout all of your time in the NHL and and I I don't know if you know people necessarily um, would be are, are totally aware of this but like you and you and Rich as twins were attached from birth obviously but like all growing up through through hockey were like you guys were inseparable in Lethbridge and then in Philly and then in St Louis like. You couldn't you couldn't escape Rich growing up, could you? <laughs> no, you know I, I think being twins, obviously, you know you, what, what one of us wanted to do, the other one wanted to try, and, and probably wanted to do better than than the other guy. So I think from the time growing up to minor hockey and minor baseball, and moving on to junior A and Red Deer um, when they were the old wrestlers, um, winning a Canadian championship there, then. Then following the year uh, going on to Lethbridge and playing with Brent, um, and we played with Brent every other year, right through through minor hockey and then uh, up through Lethbridge. So um, it was unique uh, for sure, being able to have a chance to play with a couple of brothers, and and then to be able to play with Richie for uh, a couple of years in um, Philly, and then a year and change in St. Louis. It was uh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Uh, obviously. Our, our, our roles are different on our teams. Um, uh, we rarely had a chance to play together online, but it was fun mm-hmm. just having them as a teammate again, and, and it definitely uh, made that made it much more enjoyable, uh, especially at the pro level. Do you uh, do you ever give like we see Rich all the time, and and he gives Pinder and I the gears nonstop? So I'm going to give a let let you give him a shot. Uh, but do you ever do you ever give him the gears because uh, you went six picks ahead of him in the same draft? No, you know, I, I think in general as a whole, as brothers, we never ever really viewed where you picked or what who picked you. Um, it was just the opportunity to follow in your brother's footsteps and um, knowing one day that that was something you wanted to do from the time we were probably 14 or 15 years old, knowing that, hey, if they can make it, we can make it too. So um, there was never, ever any jabs or darts thrown each other's way on that. It was just a matter of, uh, I think, if it been could be anything today maybe on the longevities of a career um brett and i playing playing over a thousand games and uh i think that's probably the only thing we can hold over one another other than the, <laughs> other than the why the brothers won in cups well and, what and, was, 
it's funny because you you uh, you spent time with Daryl in San Jose as your coach, and uh, Brent and Daryl worked together here as GM and and head coach in Calgary. I'm, I'm just like that. That's got to be a, a brand new dynamic too. When one's playing and one's a coach, and like going to San Jose and and playing under Daryl, that must have been uh, an interesting experience for you. Well, actually, I had Brian before Daryl because Brian coached me in St. Louis. That's right. I forgot about Brian and St. Louis. Oh, um, yeah. two two very intense coaches. Um, Brian more so the uh, more vocal. Uh, he was the leader more by just coming in and and getting the guys riled up, uh, firing them up, um, being more vocal in that regard. Whereas Daryl. Daryl would just come in and just his presence. I don't know what it was about him, but just, you know, he was, there was no gray area with either one of those guys, but Daryl could just walk through the locker room and, and guys would like freaking like a pin would drop They were They weren't afraid of what they he just knew that he demanded respect. And, and I enjoyed playing for both those guys. Um, obviously in San Jose, I was more on the downside of my career. Um, but still had a really important role, um, being one of a handful of older guys there. And basically, Daryl would bring us in and say, the locker room is your guys. You five or six guys, you run the locker room. If there's ever a problem, if I have to call you in or kick you in the ass, then there's a problem with you guys and your leadership. So I'd say I had Daryl three or four years, and uh, only once did he kick me in the ass. And... Uh, I could tell you a story. We were playing in Anaheim, and I was late in the game. And uh, we're actually it was in San Jose against Anaheim. And I had taken a face-off against Roots, we our line, Lowry, Ronnie Stern, and myself. We always matched up against other teams' top lines. And uh, they scored on us off of a face-off on our own end. And all I remember is getting to the bench. And Daryl giving me a little nudge in the ribs with his hand. And then um, calling me in next morning, just showing me a quick video of the goal. And all he said was, Steve frickin' Ruchin. And then he pointed at, then he pointed at the door. <laughs> Ron Sutter is with us. Um, I want to go back to that 1982 draft year. I don't know if you've heard us, but we've been revisiting draft classes starting in the mid-'90s. We're now going to do 2003 today, which is pretty legendary. But what was the buzz in '82? with you and Rich as twins, both considered very highly touted prospects, not terribly different than the Sedin situation, I would think, but maybe not the media spotlight. And then secondly, how did Rich get to Philly? Because it wasn't long that you were separated, even though you were taken by different teams in that draft. Well, I think back then the TV and the media spotlight was just starting to take hold. Um, There wasn't a whole lot of hoopla and fanfare and as a, you know, in prior years, even when Dwayne got picked in the first round, Brent was a first-round pick. Um, I think it was our year we went to the draft in Montreal was probably one of the earlier years, uh, maybe no more than two, three years in, where players actually went to the draft. Because um, I do know Brent and Dwayne were both at home and they were drafted. So, so it was shortly after. So uh, it was just a different time. You know, you went in – Went into the draft, uh, met with a few teams. Um, there was no um, nothing going on like like they did in Toronto and Buffalo with the combines. 
So it's basically made a few teams uh, at the end of the junior year in Lethbridge throughout the year. I think I had a couple teams come in and meet with me for lunch, uh, but no really in, indication of who would be drafting you. It just kind of you're on the spot, and that's how it happened. So as far as Richie coming to Philly, uh, it's kind of crazy. I was um, – Playing, we were playing in an exhibition game right near the end of, end of the exhibition, and uh, I got off the bus, and Bob McCammon was our coach and GM, and KG was kind of a, uh, you know, you just never knew where the hell you stood with him. He was, one day he'd be serious, and the next day he'd want to have fun with you, and um, I got off the bus from, I think it was an exhibition game, we were coming home from uh, the Meadowlands, and uh, he asked me how Richie was doing. And I was like, oh, frick, it's freaking one thirty in the morning. What the hell is he asking me about Richie for? And then uh, and he says to me, he goes, have you talked to him lately? I said, yeah, yesterday. And he just kind of chuckled and walked away. And I'm going, oh, what the frick was that all about? And then uh, and then we get into the start of the regular season, and um, I get a phone call. I was just before I was going to lay down for my pregame nap, and it was uh, – KG calling me to tell me that, hey, I just made a trade for your brother Richie. Uh, you got to pick him up at the airport because he's in the lineup tonight versus Toronto. That's unbelievable. That is so cool. So, so yeah, so that's how it happened. And, uh, two years later, he got traded to Vancouver. Ronnie Sutter from earlier today. I feel like we've got to get a few more Sutters on the program between now and the end of the week. Uh, we were just getting warm on the uh, the great brothers of NHL royalty. Okay, coming up, we've got in conversation with Ron McLean, Lindsey Vaughn, PK Subban, Ron McLean. Get chat with them both at the same time. Should be a lot of fun. Two professional athletes. How do they balance their lives together? And some classic flames hockey on your radio later tonight. We'll come back tomorrow. Reminder: Chris Jericho going to join us. AEW wrestler. Three thirty tomorrow. Pinder and Steinberg. Sports on nine sixty. The fan.